For decades, the history of the DC Universe has been marked by its crisis-level events, status quo-altering storylines that have rewritten continuity while also providing a meta-commentary on DC Comics publishing itself, and all under a signature red glow. This is Red Skies, a 13-part podcast epic mining these events and the Superman of it all. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Red Skies Chapter 6, and joining me to discuss Infinite Crisis by Jeff Johns, Phil Jimenez, and more is a first-time guest, George, from Shortbox Summary. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Anthony. I'm really happy to be here. We're more than 100 episodes into this podcast, but when possible, we still love to bring in new voices, and so I'm happy to connect with you and get your take on this iconic, to me and to you, story in DC lore. So there is a ton to unpack, as there always is, especially when we're talking about these crisis-level <laughs> events, and sure. we'll get into everything story-wise with respect to Infinite Crisis. We'll talk about tie-ins and specials and the DC line at the time. We'll do all of that, but... As always, I do like to start with the personal component to all of this. Now, I'll share my story in a moment, but I want to toss it to you first. We were just talking a little bit off mic. But when Infinite Crisis came out, and the first issue dropped on Wednesday, October 12th, 2005, where are you at this point in your life and in your fandom and in your comic book <laughs> career? I had just started my sophomore year of high school. I was like maybe a month in. So I think this is around the time I got my first girlfriend. I think this is around the time I was confidently sneaking into R-rated movies. It's a big, big point in time for me personally. Um, I had always been interested in comics as a kid. I, I remember the first comic I ever bought was Star Wars Dark Empire 2 issue 6. I remember like grabbing that at the grocery store just because I'm like, oh, that's Luke Skywalker. That's Han Solo. That's Princess Leia. Had no idea what the story was, but I was just happy to flip through and see familiar faces because like the movies were dead at that point, right? I was five or six years old and I was coming out. It was just nice to see them doing something. And so I stuck with comics. I remember picking up random issues of X-Men during like the Onslaught era. I remember Spider-Man, The Hidden Years when Kane was involved. And again, I didn't really understand these books, but I just thought it was really cool to see them doing things that I had never seen any of these familiar characters do before. And then in 2004, I like made the decision. I'm like, no, I'm going to understand this. And it was a little bit because do you remember that show, The OC? Yo, we could do <laughs> two <laughs> hours. Episode, we yeah. could do two hours on The OC. I love The OC. I binged it when I was in law school for the first time. I had never seen it, but I bought the complete series set on DVD. And then over the past year, my wife and I watched it. And it was the first time for her. So, and I also just went through the entire Welcome to the OC Bitches rewatch podcast. So, oh, oh yeah. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. I'm a, I'm a fan. <laughs> okay. So this is going to sound crazy to, to younger listeners of this show, but there was a time when comics just weren't that cool. Like they were just, you were kind of dorky. If you read them, they just kind of assumed you smelled bad and did a lot of stuff in basements. You know, like there, there wasn't like a great uh, perception about people who read comics. And then all of a sudden on the OC along came Seth Cohen and he was just a funny nerdy guy, good looking guy who read comics. And so that gave me like a little bit of like a confidence boost. I'm like, Oh, it's not that dorky. If I read comics, look at this cool person who's dating summer. <laughs> like I, I, I would love to date summer. Let me read some comics. And then I just started going to the shop every single week. And so I think when I started going, the big events going on were like uh, green lantern rebirth 
and like new Avengers had just come out. And then I just became obsessed. And then when there were slow months, I would just raid the dollar bins and the back issues and just try to get caught up on everything. And so this crisis was like, this was like the first thing I like really prepared for. Cause I started like reading these books. I'm like, Oh, these books are selling out. Oh, this book is six bucks. Why is this book six? If it costs two twenty five, like there must be something special about it. And then just learning the entire intricacies of comic book collecting and reading from there. Awesome. Yeah. And I know that period of time, the, the two thousands and I think the early two thousands in particular, I know that's what you're covering on your short box summary podcast. And for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and and like yourself, that was such a formative time. And I've talked about it in, in previous episodes, but just where I was in terms of my age, working at my local comic shop, and just genuinely feel the quality of what was coming out at the time. It was really special, certainly very formative for me. And I still look back on that whole stretch so fondly. And Infinite Crisis in particular really represents the high point, not of my fandom, because I really have reached new highs in doing this podcast, but... Definitely the high point in terms of my regular weekly slash monthly reading and collecting and being dialed into what's coming out and following the entire publishing line. For me, it never got bigger or better than this moment. So this was this is like a watershed moment, Infinite Crisis, in my comic book career. So I'm sure this will be a big episode. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh- just to, to egg on that, like hard agree, man. Like I, the podcast I do short box summary, it's about going back to the books I was reading when I was in high school and figuring out if they were good or if I was 15, right? That's the entire premise. I get to talk about the music, the movies, the TV shows, the the Super Bowls, everything that was going on around that time. Cause I just like celebrating the two thousands and in rereading this event, like I don't know if comics were better then. I don't want to be that older jaded comic fan. It's just like, <laughs> books today suck because i don't think that's true at all there's a lot of books coming out today that i think are awesome i think i realized like it's just i cared more back then and with an event like this how meticulously organized it was from start to finish i think it just they they made it easier to care because everything just seemed so complete yeah that's the thing and we just did a whole episode on the lead up to infinite crisis and Regardless of where anyone lands on on the quality, on the content, anything like that, just from a planning perspective, it was really it was really something. And and I think you and I were at the exact right age for these. So I have just a few years on you. So I was eighteen. I just started college when this came out. I was finishing up high school when all the lead up stuff was coming out. And not that you cannot be fully invested in something as a fully grown adult, but there is something very very magical about being, I think, in those teen years, right? Because for myself, at least, I, I felt like I was old enough to just get what was going on at a deeper level than I had before as a kid, but was still young enough to get just swept up in it. And I didn't have, I didn't have as much else going on. Like, I was just, I was, I was just all, you know, I was all in on this stuff, right? So it, it all of that kind of combined. And so... I know, I'm sure I've told this story at some point along the way, but this is the moment for it. So like I said, on October 12th, 2005, when issue number one of Infinite Crisis came out, I was a freshman in college attending Fordham University in the Bronx. I lived in Lower Westchester. I actually did not dorm. I commuted to campus. And on Wednesdays, I only had one class. It was a Spanish class. And 
throughout my academic career, I've always had, if not perfect attendance, very close to perfect attendance. So typically I go to class. I went to class. That morning, I was planning to go, but two things. Number one, I knew Infinite Crisis, number one, was coming out. And number two, it was pouring rain. That was the other thing. The weather was awful. And it was only about a 20-minute drive down to campus. But I just remember that was the last little push I needed. I was like, this book is coming out. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get my hands on it as soon as possible. And the thought of schlepping down in the pouring rain, I was just like, nah, I don't want to do this. So instead, I, I decided to forego my Spanish class for that one Wednesday, and I drove over to my local comic shop, Alternate Realities, where I worked throughout high school and college and then a little bit during law school, too. And that was one of the other reasons why I, I think I, I, I commuted, because I wanted to be able to spend as much time as possible at the comic shop. <laughs> and so this was back in the day when books, comic shops got books on Wednesday and Wednesday was the new release. I know now things have shifted and you get stuff on Tuesday, all that stuff. But this was at the time where we did the, the big breakdown of the new comic shipment on Wednesday. And so I showed up to work uh, unexpectedly. I, I, I offered my services and broke down that shipment and could not have been more excited to get a hold of Infinite Crisis number one. And like yourself, one of the things that I was really curious about heading into this reread was exactly what you articulated a moment ago. And this holds true for a lot of things we talk about on this show or, or my Power Rangers podcast in particular, where I'm going, going back to all those old Mighty Morphin episodes. It's like, yeah, how, how well, if at all, do these things hold up, right? And it's always a mix. Sometimes they hold up great. Sometimes they don't hold up so well. Sometimes it's that nostalgia that's really carrying you through. So I could not have been more excited when Infinite Crisis first came out for the most part, I really had a great time reading it. I remember by the time I got to the end feeling a little bit let down, but I think that probably had more to do with just how high my expectations were going into it. I've not revisited it a ton over the years. And so heading into this reread, the big question really was, okay, how is this going to hold up? What sort of category is this going to fall into? What am I going to come on to the show and have to say about it? And I... I am so happy to report, and of course I want to hear your your experience with your reread, but I am so happy to report I had the best time rereading <laughs> rereading that core seven-issue Infinite Crisis miniseries. I just, for me, it represented the best of this kind of event where we had the scope and the stakes of a Crisis on Infinite Earths type story, but for me, I found it to be far more grounded and rooted in character and in the tension that had been building within the DC universe and then between our DC characters and the multiverse survivors that they're ultimately going up against in this story. And I just, I loved it. I really, really had a great time with my reread. How about yourself? It was so much smarter than I remember it being. Cause like I was still relatively new to like hitting the shop up every single week at this point. So I didn't have the language. I didn't have the vocabulary for a lot of what I think they ended up talking about in the book. Right. And like, I, like, I remember years later, I understood what Superboy prime was, you know, but like rereading it this time, I'm like, Oh, Alexander Luther. Oh, he, he represents something. And just like seeing these clashing ideals of like what, uh, what a fictional character should be. That was not how I was reading it. I was just like, Holy smokes, like Superboy prime just punched that chick's head off, like <laughs> fighting the Titans. Like that was like, at the time I was like, this is heavy. This is epic. And now I'm just like, wow, this is such a smart, layered 
three-dimensional storytelling. And I started reading the first Infinite Crisis issue. And I was like, oh, I just, I'm just going to read the books that, that Anthony asked me to. And then I got like probably four pages in. I was like, no, we're doing this. We're, we're, we're doing the whole thing. So just to like tell you what my prep work was, Countdown to Infinite Crisis 1. And then I went into Adam Strange, Planet Heist, which is a book I remember loving when I was in high school. Then Ranthanagar War, which was my favorite of the countdowns just because it was this epic sci-fi space battling stuff. I thought Adam Strange was just the coolest person when I was uh, when I was in high school. I did Superman Lightning Strikes Twice, that little three-parter with Shazam. Uh, let's see. Day of Vengeance, Villains United, OMAC Project, Superman Sacrifice, uh, JSA Classified 1 through 4. And then JLA Crisis of Conscience, and I was like, I should go back and reread Identity Crisis. And I was like, No, no, no! You like, dude, you, you you're recording in a day. You should probably read the books that Anthony actually asked you to. But it was just, it was so easy to fall back into the timing of it all, right? Just like the way, like I, I I'm going to stress this so many times during the pod. I'm so sorry in advance for being boring. This was so meticulously organized, and it just reads so well. And I like that so many of the books happened in miniseries, which I can understand would be frustrating to fans, especially at the time I was 14. I didn't have a whole lot going on. You know, I had a summer job. And like I said, I had just gotten my first girlfriend. And this is back when movie tickets in my town still cost like $5, $6. You know, I just had to beg someone for a ride across uh, across the county to get there. But it's fine. So all my money was going towards comics. And I had to dial up internet connection. I was able to figure out everything I had array of post-it notes to the side of my computer and it didn't take up the ongoing books which i thought were like really interesting at the time like oh yeah this is judd winnick on green arrow like i was going back and seeing like what else was coming out at the time like oh yeah i was reading all this stuff oh yeah breach was really interesting oh this is when judd winnick was on bat like just like remembering every it was like dominoes falling and i just felt like i was a kid again and so just being able to jump back into it the fact that they made this it felt like finding a tv show that had 18 seasons that you loved and you're like all right, yeah, let's do this. Like, let's start at episode one. Let's let's go back to the beginning. Oh, that's so great to hear. Oh, I love that that you did all of that prep. So, in our prior episode, we looked at most of that lead up material. But I give you so much credit because I did not go as far as Adam Strange Planet Heights, although I have such fond memories of that bitty series. Uh, and I didn't do the lightning strikes <laughs> crossover. But we in our last episode we talked about all of that and. And I'm so I'm, I love that you did that that reread too because I that definitely gave me even more appreciation for Infinite Crisis because this was the first time I've only reread Infinite Crisis like maybe I don't know two or three times since it first came out but this is the first time that I reread it with all of the lead up material and it really definitely gives you that the full scope of this event so it was a cool way to experience it uh, now I feel yeah. like you've talked about this on your show do you you revisit this story fairly regularly. Uh, this one in particular. Yeah. Um, I always like, I would collect floppies when they were coming out, right? Like the single issues. And then if it was a series I really liked, I would pick up the trades. So I had like the Jeff Johns green lantern. I had the Brian Bendis new Avengers. Like I was collecting all those. Cause I'm like, these are my favorites. Like I'm going to want to revisit these. And it gets annoying to like, you know, unhinge the tape on your, your bag and board and pull it, pull it out. And maybe you have greasy fingers at the time. I didn't want to do that. So I got the trades. And then with events, I just treated those like movies. And so you were talking on your Crisis on Infinite Earths podcast about how often do you revisit this book. I used to reread that book every summer, like that and Secret Wars in particular, the original 85 Secret Wars, because they just felt like these big movies that I didn't think we'd ever get to the scope of in movies. And I was wrong. <laughs> you know, we, we caught up to it. It took a while, but we eventually got there. But I would just treat all these events and like I would reread them every summer. Like I just treated it like a marathon where I'd 
And then like when I was in college and there were more events, I'd be like, okay, going to start with Secret War by Bendis and Gabriel Delato and then jump into House of M and then jump into Civil War. And then I think it's World War Hulk after that, you know, and I just treated it like sequential storytelling, even though there were completely disparate events and Infinite Crisis, I thought was really good when it first came out. And then Final Crisis, I thought was really confusing when it first came out. I'm, I never feel dumber than the first time I read a Grant Morrison pen comic book. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I remember like rereading this. I'm like, there's got to be clues to this book here in Infinite Crisis. It wouldn't have the crisis title if it didn't matter. No, it doesn't have anything to do with it. But I was still like constantly looking for meaning by, by looking backwards. And this book, I just think is so complete and i have a like i said a newfound appreciation i never realized how similar the art was to the original crisis on infinite earths and i don't mean like the pencils although there is a lot of there's the george uh, perez covers and i think jerry ordway does some of the pencils and like mm-hmm. the later issues because there was some delays but like the way the paneling is done like it feels like crisis on infinite earths like the very slim vertical paneling and just the way time completely depresses and, and just breaks down in these more epic moments like like, oh, this isn't just a, a name sequel. This is like a thematic sequel, too. It's really, re- pairs really well. And uh, so you love, love her reading it. Well said. That's awesome that you go back to it that frequently. It's, it's, it'll be interesting. Oh, I don't do that now. No. <laughs> but I, when, I, when I was younger, I, I used to. I uh, actually, my new thing is to reread The Death of Superman every summer because that just feels like such a summer book to me. Good man. So, good man. Yeah, it'll, yeah. Be, it'll be interesting personally for me when because at this point essentially everything that i'm reading essentially everything i'm reading comic wise is for the podcast and at some point when when we're all said and done and that'll be quite a way down the line but when that time comes that yeah it'll be it'll be interesting what what will be the things that i go back to when it's not to prepare for an episode like what's the stuff that i'll just want to go to and i I feel like this will be on the list I, i had such a good time with it so just to set it up for anyone who I mean, maybe if you've never read it, I don't know. Or if you haven't read it in a little while and you need a little refresher. I, I know we talked about all of the lead up material last week, but essentially as we're heading into Infinite Crisis, the seven issue miniseries that ran from 2005 to 2006, the DC universe is is falling apart here. We have this major divide among Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, which I think plays out in a really interesting way uh, in the ruins of the Watchtower on the moon in issue number one. So there's this great divide... <laughs> Stemming from a variety of issues, right? We had the business with the satellite era Justice League lobotomizing their enemies, including Dr. Light and others, erasing Batman's memory when he saw what they were doing and tried to stop them. Uh, Of course, we have Wonder Woman killing Maxwell Lord, who previously had killed Blue Beetle, but killing Maxwell Lord in order to free Superman from Max Lord's mind control. The revelation that Batman had created this brother eye satellite to spy on the heroes of the DC universe to make sure that they don't abuse their powers again. And that device has been usurped by Max Lord and used to develop this OMAC project, which is turning ordinary people into these killing machines. We have intergalactic war between Ran and Thanagar. And just when it seemed like there might be a little bit of a breather there, we have these giant hands Uh, emerging through (laughs) an interdimensional rift in space. (laughs) Magic is amok. We had the Spectre without a host, led astray by Eclipso, who we later find herself was being manipulated by Psycho Pirate, uh, into declaring war on magic because if Spectre is all about order, magic represents chaos. And so the only way we can have order is to destroy all magic. And that plays out in Day of Vengeance and culminates with 
the specter killing the wizard Shazam and the Rock of Eternity crashing into Gotham City. And rather than destroying magic, it, instead all of the bonds that had held magic together broke apart. And we find out, of course, why uh, magic uh, is so important. And going back to this business about mind wiping, we have the villains of the DC universe uniting to protect themselves and to you know to uh, enact their revenge on the heroes uh, for their the misuse of their power. So that's sort of the backdrop, right? Everything that's been going on in the lead up to this. And, you know, we don't need to go beat by beat, issue by issue, but but essentially our the big reveal at the end of the first issue of Infinite Crisis is that the quartet of survivors of the original multiverse, the Earth-2 Superman and Earth-2 Lois Lane, the Earth-3 Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime, the four individuals who had survived the original multiverse and went off into paradise slash heaven at the end of the original crisis uh, are have been watching the events of the DC universe unfold and have had enough of sitting idly by and watching this earth that they sacrificed everything for fall apart. So they decide to return and to bring back. And again, they each have different agendas, as we'll see as we make our way through this year. But uh, at the outset, at least, to bring back Earth 2. Earth 2 should have been the basis of the new Earth after the original crisis. And that's what they're here to set right. And so, I mean, so much more. But that's sort of our, our initial setup for all of this. I guess the, the first question I have for you is when, especially the first time that, I mean, the first time that you experienced this, when you got to the end of that first issue... And you find out that these shadowy figures who have been observing events throughout the throughout issue number one, when they stand revealed as those four survivors of the original crisis, what, if any, resonance and impact did that have on you at the time? I was looking forward to Infinite Crisis. I wasn't exactly like blindsided by it. I was still relatively new. And I would go to uh, to the borders in my town and there would be just these giant books. And there's a, there was a time before when like the biggest trade paperbacks around only had 12 issues. So those like thick spines really stood out on the shelf. And then crisis, like I just saw crisis on infinite earths on, on one of the shelves. So like it just stuck out and then doing research. And like, I was on a website before I even knew what Wikipedia was. It turns out I was just reading stuff on Wikipedia and I was just like, Oh, this sounds epic as hell. Like this sounds really cool. And it felt like that moment in almost famous where Zoe Duchanel like leaves her record collection for her younger brother. And just like with a note, like listen to Tommy with a candle burning and you'll see your, your whole future. And like, that's what like the trade paperbacks became to me. So it was relatively fresh. Like these characters weren't gone for me for very long. Cause I'd read the trade for the first time, like um, months earlier. Right. <laughs> so like it was wild to me to see it because I'm like, Oh God, they were gone. And like, this book is 20 years after like this, this feels like a big deal. But I didn't like carry a lot of the the weight. Like I was just kind of like letting the story do that. But I don't know. There's just something really iconic about seeing that version of Superman, right? Like seeing like a Superman who made it long enough to uh, have the old Reed Richards sideburns. Um, it, it it felt epic, but also like I, I don't know. Like rereading it this time, you know how everyone's just like, oh, don't watch TV; it'll rot your brain, or like, oh, the reason kids are so angry and petulant today is because of all the violence on TV, but like they were basically watching violence on TV, right? Like, isn't that kind of what they were doing? And and so, like I said, just like the layered, like the story is so much smarter than I remembered it being and more than I gave it credit for when it first came out. And 
it was just such a great reveal. Like I, I knew what was coming, but it, that the majesty on that page when I turned to it is still there. Totally. You know, that's the thing. I, like I talked about when we, when we revisited crisis, I had read the original crisis on infinite earths uh, probably a few years before infinite crisis. So it wasn't like I got to that last page and was like, who are they? But mm-hmm. it didn't have the weight for me that I'm sure it did for people who remembered crisis a lot better than I did and, and had more invested in that original crisis story. And, and as you had, you had said earlier, yeah, this infinite crisis came out on the 20 year anniversary. And that's really what this is designed around, right? Being a, a true sequel as much as we had, for example, zero hour crisis in time, as we talked about an identity crisis, which is a different kind of crisis. This was the sequel to crisis. Uh, but so for me, it just didn't, it wasn't as much of a, of a, of a reveal as I'm sure it was for other fans, though I was definitely intrigued now though, you know, going back to it, having spent the time with crisis that I have, I I can, I really like to your point, appreciate it uh, on a much deeper level. And just, again, just in terms of the writing and from an intellectual standpoint, it's like, that is an amazing, it's such a good reveal, right? It's <laughs> such a great reveal. Now I, I wonder, and, and audience, please reach out. I would be very curious to hear from you for people who, really have more of an attachment to the original crisis and especially the characters from the original crisis. I mean, I would be curious to know how you feel about the return of these characters who, again, at the end of crisis went off to their ultimate reward, right? Their story was done. And now it's being reopened. And, and, you know, we, we've all experienced that in some way, shape or form, right? Where, and you know, sometimes it doesn't go the way you want. And, you, you know, so I would be curious to hear from people how they felt about it. I think what helps in this case is that as much as there, there is a level of antagonism from this group as a whole, you do very quickly see the divide even within this group, right? Where Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime quickly stand revealed as the, the real instigators and the true villains of this piece. Whereas Earth 2 mm-hmm. Superman, his heart is still in the right place and he ultimately comes around. So I feel like for, for maybe more old school fans, they probably don't have as much of an attachment to Alexander Luther or Superboy Prime to begin with, right? right. And and the fact that Earth Two Superman and Earth Two Lois stay pure, stay good. They are they still remain heroes. I'm sure that goes a long way. But yeah, I, I would be curious if people, you know, how people felt about them coming back. It's just tough because it's a serial medium, and so like no one ever gets an ending, right? Like all these characters that we think die, like no, just wait a minute, they'll be back. But like for the better part of 20 years and like not just them, but like also Supergirl for a while was dead. Right. And then Barry was dead. And these people, like they, they won, right. Like they got to go to whatever version of heaven exists in the DC universe. Like they got to create paradise and all of a sudden just to like have it rip back, you know, just because comics are too dark now, (laughs) like the storytelling is too dark now. And then as we'll find out later in, in this conversation, like, well, the reason it's dark is their fault too, right? Like, so it, it's it's tough just to to weigh the importance versus like the the pain, I guess, of seeing these characters who were neatly and you know tidily shuffled away. That's an interesting point. You bring up a, a few a few items there. One of them is we we've seen now time and time again, right? Anytime a character dies, it's only a matter of time before they come back, right? Everybody comes back, yet. I think why this surprise works so well is they're 
And I don't think this really is the case anymore. I feel like at this point in time, the only people who you really expect not to come back are the Waynes and Uncle Ben, right? I mean, really, <laughs> really the ones that are so are, are so uh, you know closely tied to the origin story in particular. I mean, everyone else comes back, but at this point in time in particular, I feel like enough time had passed with with this quartet with Barry Allen where if it, it felt so settled there were certain deaths and i think Barry Allen was was one where you kind of felt like okay that character had his time and met his end and and it was such a heroic death and such a momentous mm-hmm. occasion in that story and in dc history and then you know, they've, they've all come back but i think again at the time this really worked because these were not characters you were necessarily expecting as much as now we expect everybody to come back so the, the other thing too is while the reveal at the end of issue one didn't didn't blow my mind at the time, the the bit at the end of issue two where their agenda stands revealed, this notion that at the end of the original crisis, we, you know, we had had these five Earths from the multiverse and then they were sort of merged, but Earth one was the basis for this new combined mm-hmm. Earth post-crisis. And their agenda stands revealed as, hey, it should have been Earth two as the basis. This is why this Earth is so dark and so corrupt and these heroes can't work together and everything's falling apart. It should have been Earth too. And I remember that really, really captured my attention at the time because I didn't know where this was going. And looking at it now and seeing the, the big picture, of course, thematically, narratively, even from a meta sense, it's far more powerful to take this charge against the current the then current DC and the then current comics, that they're too dark, right? And everything's gone astray and she's like, no, no, no. These heroes, they still have what it takes. They can pull it together. That's of course a far more compelling story than, yeah, these multiverse survivors are right and we need to you know, we need to start over. Totally get that. But at the time I didn't know, and I didn't know what DC's publishing objective with this was, right? Maybe they were feeling like, okay, after 20 years, we are going to sort of start over and we are going to go to earth too. Like I, I just remember at the time really being like, wow, I don't know where this is going. Well, like so many characters had at that point, like gotten AIDS, become addicted to drugs, had sexual assaults. And like, at the time it's just like, you know what? They're right. DC is kind of dark these days. <laughs> like the stories are getting way heavier. Like, I don't think I don't think I could have like handed like a, if I had like a five-year-old nephew at the time, like I do now, like I feel more comfortable handing them so many more comics that are being printed today than I I'm sure I would have those years ago. Right. Like it's just like, Oh, identity crisis. Oh, it's got all these main cool characters on the book. I wonder what's going to happen in there. It's like, yeah, you can't give that to a kid, man. That's, that's like a little too heavy for, that was too heavy for me. And I was 15, 14 when that book was coming out, you know? So like uh, on one hand, they had a point and like all these years later, like I think it's really interesting that like there's the make America great again is like a slogan from Ronald Reagan that he gave in 1980 when he announced his candidacy. Right. And like the original crisis came out in 85. So like that was like the height of like Ronald Reagan's second term. And like, I don't know, just the idea of like even like back to the future going from 85 back to 55, like there's like these concurrent themes, I guess, that are always operating where it's just like, no, dude, like you think things are bad now like things were perfect just this time ago we just got to do that and it's just like oh man this is so much more layered than i thought it was again like rereading it where i just didn't have the articulation uh for comics that i that i do now and uh that that reveal at the end of the second issue and then just 
the, the way it keeps snowballing. And just when you think it's bad, it gets so much worse every single time. They always find a way to up the ante with like, oh, they're doing this. I'm like, oh, well, that doesn't seem that bad. That seems like even this is a slight tangent, but like the identity crisis crux, right? Like about like taking minutes away from people or like wiping their memory. Like that seems in line with like seventies bronze age and silver age stories, right? Like it's just like, Oh, we'll just make them forget the last five minutes and then everything will be hunky dory. Like doesn't seem like out of line, but then like you have the emotional maturity 30 years later to be like, no, that's pretty messed up, man. (laughs) And so just for as an adult now, as opposed to like a high schooler, then I'm just like, wow, this is so heavy in a way that I just don't remember processing at the time. And yeah, I got that issue too. Not my favorite issue. We're coming up to my favorite issue in this series, but oh, okay, um, right on. Right but on. it was it was a, it was it was a it was a good cliffhanger for sure. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its fortieth year, this multiple time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back issue selection as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Oh, yeah. When we get sort of the, we get a couple of history lessons over the course of Infinite Crisis, explaining the events of the original crisis, and then later explaining what Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime had been up to uh, behind the scenes in the, in the time leading up to Infinite Crisis. But in particular, when they're talking about how dark this earth has gotten, and we're seeing moments from from the post-crisis DCU history and starting with the death of Superman and Nightfall and, and you know, Wonder Woman being replaced and, and Hal Jordan going crazy. And then it continues right into the next panel with all the events of Identity Crisis and the reveal of the mind wipe and, and so on. And when you see everything laid out that way, you know, they are, <laughs> they are making quite a case for how things have, have sort of gone astray. So it was, it was interesting. I think that's, that's one of the things that makes this story work so well is that this this group and I know I keep saying quartet Lois or the Earth to Lois Lane is is really at the end of the road here right and of course mm-hmm. that's a big driver for Earth to Superman he wants to bring back his Earth because he thinks that that will save her but uh, she more than anyone has come to terms with her lot and with this new earth and, and still has faith. even even in that first issue when we just kind of see them in shadow and they're watching the hero she's the one who expresses hope that oh connor kent will he'll still step up he'll still you know he'll, he'll still help it was it was hard for me to tell who was speaking in the silhouettes right and then i was like oh i'm just making assumptions but then like just hearing her speak and then hearing the others speak throughout the series like it, every like like i said dominoes just fell down it's just like oh of course that was that was lois you know because like you want to think it's superman you want to think it's like the, the face of hope, the face of optimism, but no, it was, it was the face of optimism's rock. Who is the one who, uh, who didn't waver. 
Very true. So that's why I know I keep saying quartet, but it's it's really, at least at the beginning, really more so the trio who see this, you know, this this do over that's needed. But what I think one of the things that makes the story work so well is that you get where they're coming from, right? At least to a certain degree, and especially when you place yourself yourself in their shoes, this notion that they their worlds were were wiped out, right? They sacrificed everything. They helped save what was left of the multiverse. They got what was supposed to be a reward. And then you see what that reward actually was, where it's this quasi, you know, heavenly dimension. But really, like you said, all they can do is watch what's unfolding and to see from their perspective, this amazing chance, new start given to the the post-crisis heroes to see, in their opinion, that opportunity squandered of course would have an effect. So I think that's the other thing about this that works so well is that it's not unlike the original crisis where it's the anti-monitor who just wants to wipe out everything. It's like, okay, that's it's big and over the top and it's fun. But here it's, it's, it's so much more personal and you, you get where they're coming from. Not that you necessarily root for them, but like you get their perspective yeah. does track. And I, I think that's one of the things that really, really makes this work for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of uh, the writer Jeff Johns' strengths, right? Like, he is so good and proven over the years, like, hey, there's little tiny cracks in these characters. I'm going to go in with Putty, fill them up, spackle them, you know, <laughs> and just paint over sand. Like, I'm going to make it sure, like, you can't tell that there's ever a seam here. And uses that to his advantage in so many stories, right? Like, I know it's really controversial, like, what happened with, with Hal, with, with Parallax, but, like, that was a really compelling story. And as someone who like didn't really remember Hal Jordan, like losing it back in the day, cause I was five years old, I think I was like, damn, that was a really good read. <laughs> you know, like that, like everything made sense. And then to carry that story forward, like that kind of, he just seems like the continuity doctor in terms of writers, like not just at, at DC, but like, I guess, I guess just at DC. I was like, his Marvel stuff. He didn't really fix continuity. He's, on Avengers for a little bit, not too long, but like the dude just comes in and kind of fixes stuff. And it's, it's up to you whether you like it or not. I generally do most of the time, but like, I don't know. It's like I said, just infinitely compelling every time he comes in and just like tweaks things to, to make more sense for both the modern audience and people who have access to this previous information that they find contradictory that they probably didn't have back in the eighties, right? Like there's no Wikipedia then. So like, you either knew it or you didn't know it. And now you, you know, everything at all times. For sure. I mean, I, my, uh, my, my fandom of Jeff Johns has, there's sort of been ebbs and flows over the years, but this stretch and this time in particular is definitely, I think we're, we're in the, the era of his, of his best work. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, exactly what he does, does with these characters here is, is, is very much, very much shows his strengths as a writer uh, what was interesting, I didn't ask you to reread this in part because, man, I totally forgot about it until I was reading the back matter in the Infinite Crisis collected edition because they had interviews with with Johns and Jimenez and uh, other members of the creative team. And this was mentioned. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And of course, it's not on the app. So I had to resort to some other means. But the Infinite Crisis secret files and origins one shot. That was on my list. Unfortunately, it is not on DC Infinite. Um, I have it somewhere in my basement, but it is a it's a mess down there, so I could not find it. It's quite all right. So w- one thing, real quick, that that's funny is that, so the reason why this came up in those interviews in the collected edition was John's made a point. He was like, just for the record, 
There's no Superboy Prime punching the walls of continuity in our book. And then there's a little note like this, this was revealed in Infinite Crisis Secret Files. And I was like, oh, and so I had to go back and read it because, you know, this is one of the things we've, we've all sort of uh, had some fun with over the years, this notion as mm-hmm. revealed, again, not in the pages of Infinite Crisis, though I think we, most of us tend to attribute it to that, but it wasn't the core miniseries. It was the Secret Files one shot where basically you see what this quartet has been up to uh, since yeah. the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it's in that one shot where we get this bit of business about Superboy Prime punching the walls of this heaven and in so doing causes these continuity alterations in the post-crisis DC universe. Uh, I think that was I think that was in like the Batman annual 26 too, right? Where, where Jason Todd. <sighs> that to <laughs> me, I, you know, not not to go too far afield, but that to Sorry. me was the, no, no, no. I was going to bring it up if you did that because that that's like the one example in particular where I'm just like, man, you don't need that, right? For anyone who's not familiar, right? The Judd Judd Winnick, uh, you know, under the under the Red Hood arc, which is a great arc, and I love it. And then you get that Batman annual that reveals how Jason Todd came back to life and ultimately became the Red Hood. And what drives me nuts about that is, is in those flashbacks, you see that it's Superboy Prime punching the walls of continuity that results in Jason Todd being alive in that coffin. And it's, I'm going off of memory. It's been years and years since I read this. Yet he's then still put in a Lazarus pit. And so the thing that always drove me nuts is like, why, why did you need, in a Batman story, in an otherwise pretty grounded <laughs> I mean, Lazarus Pit aside, but but still, that's within the that's within the bounds of of the Batman world, the Batman universe, right? Why would you need to insert this absurd nonsense about Superboy Prime punching the walls of continuity and causing this change? If you were just going to throw him in a Lazarus Pit anyway, I don't understand. Like, you know, it still drives me nuts. Man, I love seeing you heated. <laughs> <laughs> I just never got it. I never got it. It was always such a weird choice to me. It's one of those things, and again, in my mind, in my memory, and I feel like this is probably true for a lot of people, I have always attributed that to Jeff Johns, but it was Marv Wolfman who wrote that that Secret Files one-shot. And I, To me, it, it, it reads like I get why it's an attractive idea, right? This notion of, hey, any kind of continuity contradictions, things that haven't quite lined up, characters or histories that changed without really an in-story explanation, well, we can kind of chalk it all up to Superboy Prime wailing away on those continuity walls. But I feel like it's it's just not, it's not, it doesn't feel (laughs) organic or, or, I just don't like it. No, it's, it's the jungle juice of, of comics continuity, right? Where it's like, oh, we have like a little bit of alcohol left over in eight different bottles. I know let's mix them all together and then put some sherbet in there, and then all of a sudden we, we got a cocktail. They're like, oh, this part doesn't make sense. Like, ah, don't worry, man. Superboy Prime just punched that wall wicked hard. That that's where it came from. Yeah. I know. There's I I I don't I don't listen to, but I there is a podcast, right? Called Punch the Timeline Podcast or something like that. Oh yeah. 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 So yeah, the prime punch, right? It it ultimately became, I think, more of a joke among fans. So I think that in and of itself probably speaks to its lack of viability as a real story idea. 
Well, that and the bummer is it's like the story did so much right. Like there, there are so many amazing moments in this entire event across. I think I read close to like 50 books just in prep for this, man. Like I was uh, I'm not complaining. I was really happy to do it. <laughs> but like that was like the most homework I've done for like I haven't read 50 books for like one of my shows. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> um, just so the audience knows. What I asked George, I only asked George to, to read the seven issue miniseries, the This Is Your Life Superman three parter, and the the four wrap up specials to those mm-hmm. lead in miniseries. So I'm oh, not, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I didn't, took, yeah. took it upon myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sorry, I lost my train of thought, but um, yeah, with the punch, the prime. No, no, I'm sorry, oh, I threw oh, you oh, off oh, right the, yeah, with, the, the, with the prime punch. Yeah, it's just. It's, Sorry, so much was the, I, I got that. So much was done right across all these issues, right? And it's just like everyone gets caught up on like the punching, the continuity. It's like that wasn't even. But you're right, that wasn't even in the main book, man. Like that wasn't part of the story they were telling. That was like, oh, we have some extra material. Let's pop, you know, put this together and try to get a couple extra bucks out of people with the Secret Files and Origins. Which I never personally liked those books that much, just because. I always felt like I was getting like a little, like oh here's a four page short story and then just like the recent events that I was reading in the comics themselves. So like, I, I never got it, but I think I, I did grab that issue. Cause I was, I was feeling infinite crisis pretty hard back in the day. I hear you. I always, I actually always like those, those issues. I feel like, especially in a more pre-internet age, I like the profile pages cause it was a great way to learn mm-hmm. about the characters. And I liked, especially for books that I was really following to get a little side story that tied into the larger events. I was always there for that, but uh, yeah, the and and reading that that interview with Johns, I you get the sense maybe it's a little bit of a sore spot this this business about the prime punching because he like really <laughs> wanted to make it clear like that wasn't us. But anyway, the that secret files issue actually is worth revisiting, you know, for you or our audience if if anyone gets a chance because again you get to see what's been going on with this group uh, leading up to Infinite Crisis and you really do see like you understand why. Luther and Superboy Prime in particular would lose it the way they do. Because again, even though her health is ultimately failing, Superman has Lois, right? They're together. Alexandra Luther and Superboy Prime are the the last refugees of their respective worlds. And there's literally nothing to do in this quote-unquote heaven except watch what's been happening. Mm -hmm. And... Alexander Luther seems to be the first one to kind of crack because you see him manipulating Superboy Prime, uh, making him see the destruction of his of his Earth over and over, and you see the toll that that's taking on Superboy Prime, and that quote, no pun intended primes him <laughs> to be more susceptible <laughs> when Alexander Luther is like, "Hey, we can do something about this." But for me, I think the greatest value of that Secret Files one shot is that it it made a point that I really hadn't thought about, but that I think accounts for a lot of this. Alexander Luther was aged up from a baby to young adulthood in the original Crisis on Infinite Earths in a span of days or less. Days, right? Yeah. So he's, I mean, not to be overly harsh, but it's like, what kind of person or entity even is he? Right? He has no no history. He has no memory. (laughs) Like there's literally his whole existence that he can remember was Crisis. That's it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, so I think that that went a long way towards helping to explain like why and maybe why he would be the first one to kind of snap. And then you see the influence that he's exerting over Superboy Prime. And then 
even in Infinite Crisis itself, you see, multiple times you see him whispering in the ear of Earth to Superman. It's like, if we do this, we can save Lois, right? So you see the manipulator that he is. But th that one shot, I think, was helpful for that. And there was also, I, I, one other thing that stood out was Alexander Luther's talking about how at the end of Crisis, he was looking to save them and take them somewhere. And he saw one vision of what he assumed was hell. And so that's why he took them to this other dimension. But what he now realizes was that it was actually apocalypse. That was that hell, that hellscape that he saw. Because in the original Crisis, Darkseid does help. And there is this connection point between Alexander Luther and Darkseid where I think Darkseid has seen the events through Luther's eyes or something like that. So, so Alexander Luther, there's this, there's this frustration that he could have taken them to apocalypse, which would have given them a pathway or at least a chance to get to Earth, right? But instead mm -hmm. he took them to this pocket dimension or whatever whatever we want to call it uh and and they've been stuck there so it was interesting i was, was glad to revisit it but again not the not where the main action is here i wish it was on dc infinite man <laughs> it would have yeah, been cool yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, the last thing because this ties back to a recent episode that we did where we talked about zero hour and and then the concept of hypertime as introduced in Mark Wade's The Kingdom. And I know I talked mm -hmm. about that there. I just want to bring it back here just for a second. In The Kingdom, we we begin and end with this framing device of the Golden Age Earth 2 Superman in his 1940s metropolis with the Daily Star and his version of the S logo and all that stuff. Uh, even though it's not explicitly said this is Earth 2 Superman, that's clearly the intention and the implication. And you see him banging on the sky, right? And the caption tells us this was meant to be heaven, not a prison. And, uh, you know, even though that, you know, that was its own thing and that tied into this whole idea of hypertime and all these various realities that can coexist, all, all that business that we talked about, I, I, I'll reinstate the question that I, I posed in that other episode. I do, like, I wonder to what extent, if any, Jeff Johns was inspired by that notion because it, you, the, the way it plays out here, this idea that, hey, these characters got what was supposed to be a heaven, a paradise, their ultimate reward, and it proved to not be that. And again, you, you saw an early version of that in the kingdom. So I, I always kind of mm -hmm. wonder if, if he had that in his head when he was doing this. I have to assume so, right? I mean, like, the, the they share a connection with the Flash, right? Like, they both wrote Wally for such a long time. So I have to assume Jeff Johns was pretty familiar with... Uh, the canon of, of Mark Wade. And like, after that, they became like really close colleagues. Right. Cause like it was them, Greg Rekka and Grant Morrison who co-wrote 52 together. So yes, which we'll I, be hitting I, next I, week. I'm excited. Oh, oh my God. I, I don't have time to read all those before <laughs> next week. <laughs> um, so I, I have to assume that that was like an active conversation, but it is really interesting too. Cause like just seeing hints of it and I don't know, again, the, the fact that you could make the argument of just like, oh, this was really well organized. This, they planted the seeds 10 years earlier. Yeah, I don't think they really planted the seeds. But the fact that they were able to like make all these connections and make all these books relevant, right? Like that's that's really impressive. I, I just recently did House of M on my podcast. I love that series. I love it so much. It's, um, it's not the same editorial achievement, I think, that uh, Infinite Crisis proved to be. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I only ever... 
I only ever really dabbled with, with House of M. I never, I never went all in on on that one. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, again, let me keep coming back to this idea. This was, I think, a very well, a well put together event. Who knows the chaos behind the scenes? But in terms of what they put out there, and especially revisiting it these years later and seeing it all together and seeing the big picture, uh, again, for me at least, it, it works. And going back to the first issue of of Infinite Crisis, it has, you know, that exchange between Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman on what's left of the Watchtower. Because at the end of, of Crisis of Conscience, Jean is encounters some unseen figure and then the Watchtower blows up. And of course, we'll learn over the course of this miniseries, that was actually Superboy Prime. Uh, but to have the three of them having this philosophical argument in the ruins of the Watchtower before they are they are uh, interrupted by Mongol in a in a great callback to for the man who has everything, right? So mm-hmm. I love that bit. But to have them debating each other while all this stuff is happening on the ground, uh, I, I think is just is is a great setup and just shows shows where they are and just that that interpersonal conflict and it it leads to one of the sickest burns that I think we've ever gotten in a comic when Batman says to Superman, face it, Superman, the last time you really inspired anyone was when you were dead. I was, I wanted to ask you about that so bad. Just knowing you have a Superman podcast. I'm like, so did you just like throw the book across the room the first time you saw it? Like, were you just, <laughs> were, were like, were you offended? Um, Cause it is a sick burn. And then like, I think that was why I went and read death of Superman. Cause I'm just like, wow. Like just the way it's framed too. Cause like you can see everyone's faces throughout and then like that panel is actually just black from from batman's cowl and like the his sharp angular eyes and then just like it was when you were dead right like it wasn't even like the whole quote in the same panel it was just vicious and it was so like artistically curated to to be presented like that compared to everything else in the conversation and so like it really stands out as just this venomous thing to say to someone who's you know like i hate to bring like a child's level attention to comics but it's like no, Superman and Batman are best friends, man. Like they, they like they're bros, and they just have that be the conversation. It's just like it's still heartbreaking. Might be like too strong of a word for for this, but like it's it's painful to see at the very least, right? Like he's being a dick on purpose. <laughs> yeah, that's and later on in Infinite Crisis, Bruce snaps at Alfred. It's like Alfred, like how dare you? <laughs> but he's in you know he's in such a such a dark place at, at this moment. I feel like. I wish I remembered more specifically. That line definitely made an impression, as you would expect it to, when I read it the first time. I don't, I don't know if I remember being offended on Superman's behalf. I think I recognize that. Again, it's 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 a it's such a biting, powerful statement, and it encapsulates the fracture within their relationship at that point. So I probably focused more on that more so than like, Hey, how dare you say that? It's my favorite character. <laughs> I, was, I was, I was teasing. But was no, teasing. no, no. Well, listen, we, I get worked up about it, So it's not, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. But I think the other thing was at the time we were coming out of the Greg Rucka run where we were still in the Greg Rucka run on adventures of Superman, which I, I was enjoying. And we've, we've talked about that. Uh, on the main Superman title, we had had For Tomorrow, and then we were in the Mark Verheiden, that, that short-lived tenure. And over in action, we had the Chuck Austin run, good Lord. And then Gail Simone and John Byrne, which I, now people seem to be okay with. I recently revisited it. It was fine. Like, it was fine. But So all that being said, 
at that point in time, it's not like I was so high on the Superman books at the moment. I think there was probably a part of me that was like, yeah, you know, like I haven't, I'm not, <laughs> Got a point. Yeah. Like I'm not so into what they've been doing. I do kind of, you know, I do kind of get it. And then, you, you know, you see it play out because then I, I guess it must be in the next issue when we do visit the daily planet briefly. And, and again, like the world's on fire and Lois finds Clark just standing there looking at the, the framed uh, headline from, mm -hmm. from when, when he died and, you know, thankfully he quickly changes into Superman and, and, and heads into action. But it, it really shows you exactly, I think, what, what Batman is talking about and just his inaction. And on this note, one of the reasons I have been so excited to finally cover Infinite Crisis has taken us over 100 episodes. I end every single episode. My sign-off is a quote from the final issue of Infinite Crisis. It's about what you do. It's about action. So I'm happy to finally be talking about <laughs> the comic that I, I was inspired uh, to pull our tagline for. And it's funny because over the years, I know I've mentioned it on the show where the tagline comes from and on uh, social media, people have, have asked a couple of times. I remember one time I posted a screenshot of the page, of the page from number seven with that quote. And, and at least one person was like, oh, where's this from? I'm like, where's it from? Infinite Crisis. But that's the thing. You know, everyone has a different frame of reference and experience level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my mind, it's like, if you haven't read Infinite Crisis, but it's like, no, look, the thing's tw almost, almost 20 years old at this point. Uh, so not everyone uh, has. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But let me, let me ask you this, especially because you just reread all of that lead up material. This, this division when we're talking about Superman and Batman and Warner. And it's not like a two-on-one sort of thing. They each have a problem with, with the others, right? It, it feels <laughs> kind of even in their, in their divide, which I like. But I, I guess what's your take on the state of, their relation, of the relationship among the Trinity at this point? And does the tension between them feel earned in terms of all this lead-up material that you've looked at? I think it does for some characters. Like, um... It, having like Tower Babel as like a reference point for Batman, like, right. Cause like that sort of adds more context, to like how long he's been kind of planning stuff as opposed to like the Maxwell Lord murder by Diana. Like the fact that it happened in the event, it's like, Oh, so what would you have been pissed about if, if she didn't kill Maxwell Lord? Right. But the, the fact that it seems more like buried and, and I, I guess earned, even though I, I don't really, I don't think that's like an appropriate word, but like with Batman, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's good layered storytelling. Right. Cause like, I remember at the time wizard was like, Oh yeah. Batman's like <laughs> off the reservation again. Check it out. Just like these issues of JLA, these are about to jump up in price. We bet. And that was when I like went and tracked those issues down just so I could read the story. And uh, I, I don't know. Cause like at the time, this was when Superman had just made like a new fortress of solitude, right. In the, in the rainforest. Yes. And it was like becoming more, detached from people right like was becoming not, not that like the amazon's more remote than the arctic but like it, it seemed like he was a little less human I, I guess at that point and like you could blame the fact that it was like the chuck austin action comics <laughs> time the mark verheerden experiment which I, I remember getting those books because i think that was when ed bennis was yep. the artist and yeah those were pretty looking books I'll, i will say that um but it, he just seemed like he was more of an island of, of, of a person than like, you know, the warm, caring, involved Superman that I think uh, writers, at least nowadays, like really aspire to create. And so it was it was really tense. And it was nice to see, like, 
I mean, again, I'm a little sick of everything being so dark and dour after living, you know, for 22 years after 9-11. I'm like, what if things were like, what if we were happy about stuff, you guys? Like, that would be kind of cool, too, right? Like, don't tell me about the Atlantic Current every day. Let me forget about it for one day, please. But just like seeing it at the time, I was like, oh, this is edgy. Ooh, this is mature. And like, that was just, you know, 14 year old me. But like rereading it, I'm like, no, I, I get this, though. Like, I get why they're pissed at each other. I get why they don't trust each other. And I think it's really interesting what you see happen to all of the characters throughout the story. Because I think it's after Earth 2 Superman talks to Batman. Batman immediately lightens up in the story for, for the rest of it. And then he has that conversation with Dick, right? And then from then on out, he's, like, cracking jokes. He's, like, you actually see him, like, crack smiles. And, like, it actually seems like he has been affected, right? Like, if this Earth 2 like moral compass is like a real thing. Like, yeah, he was like, it was contagious at that point. You see that happen. You see Diana, like actually have faith and, and trust in people too, which was nice to see. And then you see Superman, like really involve himself in, in affairs in a big way. And like, just realizing that like, okay, like I need to step up. I need to take care of this. And it, it was, it was nice seeing just like such immediate character growth to, uh, to things that happened within the story that I just flat out did not remember from, the last time I read it. Yeah. It, you know, it tracks so well. I love that the Trinity are, are such a huge focus of this as much as there's so much going on, they really do remain our through line. And we get this great circular ending where they're at each other's throats at the beginning of the story and the ruins of the watchtower. And then at the end they're they're on far better terms and they're each going off on their journey of self-discovery for the, you know, the, the missing year that we're going to have in the DC universe. But, and the other thing too is and unsurprisingly, I guess why I, one of the reasons I love this event so much, it's so Superman centric and we have our Superman, we have Earth 2 Superman, we have Superboy Prime, like this is great. I mean, Superboy, which, oh well, my goodness, we'll get to, we'll get to all of that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, to me, a lot of, you know, this did feel earned and it's interesting when we talk about that, sort of that montage in, in issue two where the, you know, our, our survivors lay out everything that they perceive to be wrong with the current DC universe. And it's, I, to me, it's an interesting mix of, looking what had happened over the years, right? Before Jeff Johns and the current creators, right? Looking at things like Nightfall and Death of Superman and Emerald Twilight, and then looking at what was, you know, I mean, and I don't say this in, to put it down in any way, but more manufactured because they knew they were building to Infinite Crisis, right? And if the crux of it is going to be, hey, this DC universe is too dark, things have gone wrong, right? We need to we need to show that and we need to add to that. So you get things like Identity Crisis and all the lead up miniseries and, and all of these things. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting combination, I think, of what had already been laid out in the years leading up to it and then what they were purposely planting leading leading into this, which which I like. But yeah, I mean, to follow the, the journey of all these characters throughout, you know, you mentioned Batman and, and it is true. He, that, that exchange with Earth 2 Superman <laughs> definitely seems to have to have an impact on him. It has one of my one of my absolute favorite moments of the entire series when Earth 2 Superman is explaining, like, look, this Earth is dark, it's wrong, it's corrupted. Everyone's a, a worse version of, of the, the hero I knew. Mm-hmm. And Bruce asks about Dick Grayson. He's like, is, is Dick are Dick Grayson a, a corrupt version of the one you knew? And 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 this is and this is still the the integrity and the heroism of Earth to Superman because he can't lie right and he he has to take that moment and say no and that's enough for Bruce to pull out that kryptonite ring right I like I love and of, and of course as as fans are likely aware you know Dan DeDio really had a had it out for Dick Grayson and wanted to kill Dick Grayson. <sighs> 
Yeah. And they talk about they talk about this in the collected edition in those interviews. And eventually they pivoted to Connor Kent, Superboy. But as I don't know exactly when that decision was made, because reading a lot of Infinite Crisis, you could see how this was going to end with Dick Grayson being killed because there he's he has that critical role in a few a few places where you could see mm-hmm. how they were kind of building to that. But yeah, the fact that that was that was sort of the test for this Earth was Dick Grayson. I love that. I thought that was great. That is an incredible moment. Um, probably definitely in my top three favorite moments of of this story, for sure. And I think I think that's what's great about this book too. Is like so many times like you're reading an event. And it's like, oh, the it's I, it's either the sum is greater than the parts or the parts are greater than the sum. I don't think that's the case. Like, I, I think from start to finish, like, I hate to sound like such a, like, fanboy, but no, nah, man, like, this book is great from start to finish. And, like, the, the highs of it are so high. And, like, I still remember the two of them chatting, you know, 15 years later, however long it's been since it came out. I'm just like, yeah, this moment is just as good as 15-year-old me, 16-year-old me remembers. But you're you're right about Bruce starting to crack some jokes uh, as we get deeper into the story. What was what was really funny is, uh, and I, I know we're jumping around a bit, but I, as, while we're talking Batman here, eventually Batman is part of this this outer space odyssey to uh, finally locate Brother Eye, which has been invisible to all means of all means of detection. But we have Jaime Reyes, the new Blue Beetle, who is the only person in existence who can actually see the satellite, and so we have this group heading into space, and and Ollie's there. And he says to Bruce, like, why'd you have, why'd you bring me along? And Bruce is like, I just wanted to see if you'd show up. Now, yeah. <laughs> what was funny is, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's also, it's a great moment because certainly Ollie was mixed up in all of the mind wiping business and they've been at odds. And so to have that moment of reconciliation between the two of them, I thought was, was great. But what made me laugh as I was reading it was, again, it's been a long time. I don't remember all the details. I was like, oh. There must be some point where he, where Bruce needs an archer on the satellite. You know, there's some, there's some button that need, they need to shoot an arrow at or something like there's gotta be a reason why Ollie would mm-hmm. be here. There really isn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think he's probably there because Dinah was there, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like, yeah, it's weird to invite uh, one half of a couple over, but not the other half. Yeah. But uh, was, did, did yeah. they, the, uh, did they ever explain why Jaime was the only one who could detect Brother Eye? It was, I don't know, some, just with the scarab. I don't know. The scarab allowed okay. him to to do that. I, that was I that was my one like uh, nitpick from the storm. Just like why? Like I understand you were launching a new Blue Beetle series, and I think it was, it was Keith Giffen who started it with um, a really good penciler whose name I unfortunately can't. Uh, Raphael Albuquerque was was on the book, and then I think it was like John Rogers was the writer uh, with with other artists. And so like I remember like I like a 30 issue run. I like, I remember really enjoying that, but I remember buying it. Cause I'm just like, okay, we're going to find out something about why the scarab could detect brother, brother. I, right. No, I, not to my recollection. <laughs> Interesting. You know, I've never, I've never read that series, but I'm, I'm certainly open to giving it a spin. I think it could be fun. I, I, I do like what I've seen of the character. And by the time this episode comes out, I think the movie will be out and we'll, we'll see how that all shakes out. Dude, but, you, you screwed up my, my backlog schedule so bad with this. Cause like now I'm like looking, I'm like, all right, well I got to read shadow pact. I'm like, I should also <laughs> probably read secret six. You know what? While I'm at it, I got to check out checkmate. And, uh, oh yeah, there was that, uh, Kyle Rayner Ion series. Like, yeah, I remember reading that. Like I should, I should go back. And so now I'm just going to do a, a, a deep binge and completely 
just torpedo my Marvel podcast by reading nothing but DC for, for a couple of weeks now. Yeah. I don't mean to throw you off track and I, I apologize to your audience. I hope, <laughs> I hope, uh, no, I know, but like it opens up this whole can of worms. I, I totally get it. And while we're, while we're talking about Bruce on the satellite, I love one of my other favorite moments in all of this is when Bruce is having his final showdown with, with brother. I, and we find out he's been distracting the satellite while, uh, mm-hmm. while Mr. Terrific is destroying the propulsion system, right. To knock it out of orbit. Uh, and great moment for Mr. Terrific, who's invisible to, to, uh, electronic surveillance. So that's terrific. No pun intended. Um, but, <laughs> but as, as this is all happening, Brother I makes this appeal to to Bruce, right? And playing into all of his fears, all of the insecurities, everything that led to him creating the satellite in the first place. Like, you can't trust them. You can't trust these heroes. And Bruce says something to the effect of, I'll take my chances. And as the satellite is, is, is falling out of orbit, he takes the hand of none other than Hal Jordan, recently returned to his hero status in Green Lantern Rebirth. And, you know, Jeff Johns got a lot of mileage out of the fact that Bruce in particular, out of everyone in the DC Universe, Bruce in particular, had a very hard time coming around on this idea of, oh, Hal is back. And so for it to be Hal Jordan, one of the ones who was there for the magical lobotomy and the mm. the, the mind wipe of Batman, and who then went on this murderous rampage and became this villain, and then, you know, came back as, oh, it wasn't really me, I was being influenced... For, for him to be the one whose hand Batman takes, I thought that was such a great, such a great moment. It shows how far Bruce has come in terms of forgiveness. Oh, and dude, he, he like knocked Batman out, right? Like, didn't he knock him on his, on his, on his butt with a punch at the end of Green Lantern Rebirth? I'm pretty sure. Like they made some comment and then Hal just clocks him and like knocks him out. And Gardner was just like, God, it's so cool seeing someone punch Batman. <laughs> you know, I had, <laughs> yes. like a little moment that was like a reverse of the, the Justice League punch. Yes. Yes. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. The The other things that really stood out to me when, when we get to the death of Superboy, and obviously we'll talk more about that, but uh, to have Batman there, to have the entire Trinity, but Batman in particular, he's been there, right? He's seen a sidekick die in his arms. So you really see that way on him. And then that pays off when he tracks down Alexander Luther, mm-hmm. Right. And and actually pulls a gun on him. And what what was your your take on that whole scene? That felt bizarre to me because I had read Batman comics off and on, but like I like Batman Returns is like literally one of my favorite movies of all time. Like I was obsessed with that, especially when I was a kid. And it's so like that was like a more violent Batman, but like to go from that into Batman the Animated Series immediately after, I was like, oh, okay, no, like that's a cool, like that's movie Batman, but that's different. This is Batman. 
And just seeing him like pick up a gun is just like, oh man, this guy was so distraught by seeing his worst moment ever happen to someone else, happen to like one of his best friends. Like, oh, he's he's pushed beyond the edge. And like, this is like the great character moment for uh, Diana, right? Like, where she steps in is just like, this isn't you. Like, don't do this. Like, you're you're gonna regret this forever. And like, I don't, I never noticed it at the time, but like either Batman throws a gun or Wonder Woman throws a gun and like the gun ends up like breaking Wonder Woman's sword, right? Like the, like the blades on the ground and like the gun falling just like somehow shatters, but like not the best sword, I guess if like hitting a gun is going to break it, but like this is symbolically really powerful and, and really nice to see. And like, that was, I guess like both of their sort of catharsis, right. For not like the stuff to come, but like for everything they'd been through where they're just like, we were pushed to our edge and like, they were just throwing away the the person that they had become and like letting that, you know, symbolically break. And it was just like, oh, okay, good. We, we rescued Bruce from the edge here. So that was, that was good to see. And it was a heartwarming moment. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely surprising to see Bruce pick up the gun. You know, you mentioned final crisis, which we'll be covering not too long from now, but there's one of my f- absolute favorite moments from that is when he, when he draws the gun on dark side and he's like, I made a vow about firearms, but I'm going to make a once in a lifetime exception here. Uh, so to, to see him, to see him draw the gun was, was interesting. I don't know if you're aware there. And actually we have a patron question, which I'll get, I'll get into those questions in a little bit, but there were some changes between the single issues and the collected edition. Uh, most notably, uh, and our patron Brian had asked about this, uh, I'm not going to do a full listing of, of all of the changes, but I'm sure there are articles out there for people who are curious. But I mean, I think probably the most notable one that people are, are probably most familiar with was um, in the final issue or two in particular, they were so under the gun uh, with deadlines that there were a lot of, or a number of panels that weren't fully completed. They weren't fully drawn and inked and colored. And and so they were just sort of red in the background in the single issues. And then they were fully inked and colored for the collected edition. So you definitely got a more finished, polished version in the collected edition. But in the single issue for number seven, when Batman is holding the gun uh, towards uh, Alexander Luther, they they put in a sound effect of like, click. And people were like, was he cocking the gun? Like, was he really going to do it? And so they took that out um, in the collect edition. And they talked did, about did, it. Did he pull the trigger? Was there just no bullets in there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't that. So they talked about it in the, in the interview. And I, I forget offhand. I don't know if the intention was that, yeah, he was just cocking it, but he wasn't going to, or that he was just checking to see if there was a chamber in there. I, I don't know. They basically, the gist of it was that in the original issue, they didn't mean for it to be as extreme as it came across. And so to avoid any confusion, they took it out anyway. But to your point, it's like, yeah, it really, it really ties up a lot of this this business between Batman and Wonder Woman where he sees how he, you know, he himself is, is put in this position where he is potentially, or at least entertaining the idea of taking a life. Right. So for someone who was so aghast at the idea of Wonder Woman killing Max Lord, it's like, well, he maybe kind of sees how you might, you might be pushed to that, but then to have Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman on the other side. And she literally says, it's not worth it. Great, you know, great moment of them coming together not to relitigate this because we talked a lot about Wonder Woman's execution of Maxwell Lord in the last episode, but I don't know. And I don't know. This is, I guess this is just my own read of the Max Lord situation where I, I feel like she was justified and I, I don't, I don't really have an issue with what she did. And I guess it's, it's interesting here when she says it's not worth it. 
know. Do you think she, I think she regrets that it had to happen, but do you think she looks at the events of sacrifice and she's like, oh, I did the wrong thing. I should have found another way. Like what's your read on, on that, on where she is at this point? That's really interesting. Cause like rereading the OMAG project, like I thought it was like brother. I who like kind of pushed her into that situation. So he, you know, could be free of, of dealing with Maxwell Lord because like the footage of her is like what turns everyone against the yes. justice league, right? Like she'll show up and um, try to stop looting and whatnot. And like even a girl wearing a wonder woman logo or like a wonder girl logo, like runs away from her. She's so terrified to see her. And it's like, that felt almost like, you know, brother, I psyops or whatever, right. Just like the, the propaganda against heroes. So it almost felt like that was it. It's like, I don't know if she was, if I don't know if it was like, I'm sorry I did it. Or like, I'm sorry I got caught kind of uh, attitude. But I think at that point, cause she had talked to, Earth 2 Wonder Woman at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I do think, like, there is something about these characters that is slightly contagious and and awe-inspiring, right? That I'd like to think that she was talking about, it's not worth killing him, I should have found another way. Um, But also, like, this was just the 2000s, man. Like, this was just, like, this sort of moral ambiguity that just, like, started permeating culture in, like, a post-Sopranos world, right? Like, I, I feel like that was, like, the real big genesis because I was in everyone's living room at, at 9 o'clock on Sundays every week. And it made you think, like, oh, wow, this murdering gangster is actually kind of a cool guy, right? And then think of all the shows we got after that, like like Breaking Bad and, and Game of Thrones, where, like, you started, like, actually aligning yourself with with people who did bad things and it, this, this is just like as that fiction was starting to, to permeate and become more popular so I, I think it's a really interesting quandary but also like i think it was just a sign of changing times and what people wanted from their fiction yeah that's a great point i like i mean look i think i feel like there's some room for interpretation and i like that it's not like she explicitly said to batman hey i did the wrong thing i should have found another way she says it's not worth it and i i I like the room for interpretation that that leaves because I think in my mind, again, I really, I don't have an issue with what she did in that specific circumstance with Max Lord, but this is a different circumstance. This is Alexander Luther at this point is, you know, at at their mercy here, right? So for, you know, so for Bruce to enact that kind of of retribution, that's a different circumstance than, than what Wonder Woman was in. So that's my read on it, at least. It's like, like I can say like, oh yeah, no, you had to put down Maxwell Lord. He was controlling Superman. Me- meanwhile, like I'm the guy who like gets a piece of paper and a cup. Anytime there's a spider in my house, I'm like, I don't want to kill a spider. I don't want to kill anything. <laughs> Why would I do that? That seems like a really selfish thing to do to another living thing. So like, like who am I to say, <laughs> you know, that she did the right thing or didn't do the right thing. Yeah. But, uh, but no, but I like, you know, I liked, I liked that moment a-, a lot between them. And, and to your point, I think the, you know, when we look at Wonder Woman's arc in this, Obviously, yeah, the the footage of her killing Max Lord and that's swaying public opinion and the Omax attack Paradise Island and she makes this great sacrifice, right, to send Paradise Island away from this plane of existence to save them from the Omax. But of course, she stays behind and the, the whole the whole bit is like she will, no one will be able to find it, including her. And of course, that doesn't hold true in the long run. But at the moment, it was a sacrifice. I mean, she does that, but she also says to, I, I think it's Artemis. I, I can't remember who she's talking to, where she's like, no, all these are, have cameras. Like, they can see everything we're doing. Like, put that weapon away. Like, people are going to come for it either because they're, like, scared of us or they want it for themselves. It's like, there is a bit of that, like, it, again, are you sorry or are you sorry you got caught? So, sort of like a 
dichotomy, I, I guess, with uh, the aftermath of, of your decisions. That's true. I uh, know. That is a good point. That is a good point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, w- having that moment with Earth 2, uh, Wonder Woman, I, I think was great. And just this discussion about Superman needing her help. And Diana's like, he doesn't want my help. And Earth 2, Wonder Woman is like, well, he needs it, even if he doesn't want it. And everyone makes mistakes, even Superman. And kind of on that note, going back to, I kind of lo- I like circling back to that that moment on the Watchtower and then kind of launching forward from there because looking at the Superman of it all and this whole idea of action versus inaction and, and inspiration, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things w- with this where Bruce's words do ring true, and I'm sure, you know, thinking about them as if they're real people, <laughs> you know, kind of have to be behind some of what Bruce is saying in that. Superman didn't know the Justice League had erased Bruce's memory, but he did know that they had lobotomized Dr. Light and other villains. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think this is a, it's a fascinating idea to explore. That was one of the things I really liked in Identity Crisis when, when we get to that discussion of Superman in the story of, I think it's between Wally and, and Ollie, like, does Superman know? And it's like, he hears what he wants to hear. And so, again, this notion of like, regardless of where he lands on it, to not, to have had this happen and to not take a, a kind of an official position as as the leader of all of these heroes, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's the best, <laughs> that's the that's the best look for our character. But it, again, I, I think it's, it's an interesting, you know, position to put him in and it adds some fuel to the fire when Bruce is saying these things to him. We're, we're recording on a Friday. I was really looking forward. I was going to have, you know, some, some more glasses of wine after this. I was going to play some video games. I, I might just reread identity crisis at this point, man. Like you gotta, you gotta stop making me think like oh, that event was better than I remember. Cause like, I don't think it is, but the way you're talking about, it, I'm like, Oh, there's a lot more interesting stuff than I remember. I'm like, no, there's not. It's really pretty, but that's about it. But God, Anthony. all right, I'll, uh, I'll reread the book and get back to you tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry. Listen, you might not have time depending on uh, what time we're done with this recording, <laughs> you know, to, to go long. And I feel like this one might might be one of our won't be one of our. That's a, that's a good if point. you're game. But if at any point you're like, listen, we got to wrap this up. No worries. You just let me know and we'll wind down. But as long as you're no, game, I'm, we'll... I'm, I'm good for like at least another hour. Yeah, let's, let's rock this. I'm going to need to refill my, my water glass or get some tea or something. But besides that, I'm, I'm good to go, baby. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, right on. Yeah, no, this is it's it's so much fun to to really talk about this. And and again, and the reason why I wanted to do this event is to talk about all of these things in the context of of all of these other crisis events. And with Infinite Crisis in particular in the context of all of all of the rest of this kind of swirling around. So, one of the other things, this is more more of a plot question, but we we get the reveal in Infinite Crisis as to what Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime have been up to behind the scenes of all of these events. So when we talk about those four miniseries, we get we get these great looks, I think, at the four at four the four corners of the DC universe. And Infinite Crisis sheds new light on on how all of this kind of came to be. So it was, for example, it was Alexander Luther who allowed uh, Brother I to become autonomous right after Max Lord was killed. It was uh, Alexander Luther who was posing as our Lex Luther and organizing this society of supervillains, promising them that they were going to wipe the minds of the heroes of the DC universe. But instead, he was creating this multiversal tower that was going to bring back the multiverse, right? And was going to be uh, 
or not fueled, but was going to kind of be keyed into representatives from the various Earths of the multiverse, right? That's why he needed Power Girl from Earth 2, and he needed... Uh, this was an interesting bit of business that Breach would have been the Captain Adam of Captain Earth Adam. 8 if the if the multiverse had continued. Right, so oh, that and like Kyle Rayner and yes. Helena Bartonelli would have been like the Green Lanterns and whatever of, of Earth 7 or whatever there is like it's like all right that's that seems like more important than just like a throwaway line but like that's that's like kind of cool stuff to think about. Very very true. And that Again, Psycho Pirate was manipulating Eclipso, who was <laughs> misleading the Spectre because they needed magic to fuel this tower. And Superboy was moving planets around, sparking this intergalactic war, which I guess maybe was to cause some diversion, but more importantly, to literally change the center of the universe to, I guess, what it used to be in the, uh, the Earth, Earth 2, or I, I, I forget exactly what, what that specific yeah, thing was. Yeah, that, that part the still center. doesn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter where the planets are. <laughs> like, if you're not moving Oa, Oa is still the center. But whatever, that's fine. Um, no, but it was it was incredible. And like, you were talking about these specials, and like, I love that. Like the uh, the Infinite Crisis one shot specials for each of these miniseries. There, there were just deleted scenes in like the in like pretty profound ways that I feel like so many events miss. Like they they miss like they like okay, we got the cool character check, we got the cool event check. Cool. Why does this matter? And I feel like they did a good job of, of they had a higher hit rate for making them matter than I think most events do. Yeah. I, so I guess two questions. So number one, as far as the reveal of what, of what Luther and, and uh, Superboy prime were up to, did you feel like those were satisfying reveals and payoffs to, to, you know, kind of what had been established in those miniseries? And then, yeah, those one shots, I guess you already answered this, that you feel that they were worthy additions to, to this event. Sorry. I did not mean to, uh, take the wind out of your sails by answering that ahead of time. Um, no, not I, at all. I, I do. I do like, I do like finding out that like how, how long back this had gone on and the fact that it like justified those miniseries, right? Like the fact that I was still really confused at the end of villains United. I was like, wait, Luther's here, but Luther's there. Like, I just didn't, like I said, I did not have the vocabulary for it that I do now. And I'm just like, Oh damn, that was pretty good. <laughs> you know, like, seeing them lay the groundwork that early, but like it really justified the fact that it was countdown to infinite crisis, right? Like it, it didn't just seem like here's an excuse to sell books. It seemed more creative driven than I think a lot of events have done in the past. And I, I think it did a really, really good job of making, like you said, like the four disparate corners, right? Like you had like the villains and these were like unpopular villains. So like it really scraped every corner of the villains. You had magic books, which, like, I never really cared about fantasy before. But, like, I found that book really compelling. OMAC Project, which I didn't, like, oh, yeah, I like the Bourne movies. I like James Bond. I don't really care about, like, you know, spy thrillers. And then, like, that book had its its hooks in me. And Ranthanagar War I thought was awesome because I was just, like I said, like, just, like, Star Wars. This was right after Revenge of the Sith, which I found a little underwhelming even as a 15-year-old. So um, it was it was like, yeah, this is how you do space opera, my nerds. Like, take some notes. This is how you do it. And so it was, it was really cool seeing why those books mattered, even when they were, I thought they were entertaining books, but it was hard to be like, why does this matter? And then you figured out why in Infinite Crisis. Yeah, I mean, very much so. Uh, one of the things I loved, and again, I think this is another huge strength of this story, 
is that I think it's after Alexander Luther explains to Power Girl, right? Who Power Girl learns that she uh, is the is a survivor of Earth Two, right? Because and you had mentioned that JSA classified arc. I had also taken a look at that uh, recently as well, and. Uh, you know, over the years, she had been given all of these different <laughs> convoluted backstories to try to, you know, kind of justify her existence in the DC universe. And now she finds out where she really comes from, and she's reunited with Earth Two Superman and Lois, and a powerful moment for her. And uh, you know, Luther and Superboy try to recruit her, but she ultimately she's like, "Well, we got to talk to everyone. We can save all the Earths." Uh, and of course, they nab her and you know, plug her into the tower. But after Luther explains all the stuff that they've been up to behind the scenes. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it's at this point where she's there's a sense of relief. It's like, oh, like that's why all of this stuff has gone wrong. And and Luther makes the point of like, no, it's like, yeah, we were instigating a lot of this stuff, but so much of it just just happened, right? Like that's sort of the the tragedy of all of this. And but I, it's a strength of the story because it would have been easy to be like, oh, again, even or even just something like with respect to uh, you know Wonder Woman killing Max Lord, like if they had been behind that or something. But it's like, no, there was a lot that happened that contributed to what they perceive as this darkness. It's not like it was just all a plot by the villains. It was this, really this, it just kind of all, con this convergence, right? Between their manipulations and and just these fractures within the DC universe. I thought that was a, a great touch. I think that was really important to be like, no, this this is their fault not our fault, but like, also like man, you guys like threw a lot of gas on the fire here. Like, let's not pretend you were completely, <laughs> completely innocent here. It's like, Oh yeah. Because of the hubris of the, the Ranians and, and, you know, and the arrogance of the Thanagarians, like Thanagar died. It's like, no, Thanagar died because like you moved this planet, man. Like that's why it died, <laughs> you know? So it's just like, I feel like villains always go so far out of their way to act like they're not villains. And like, that's, if they're successful, that makes them a good villain. But like this, I, I, I got 98% of the way there, but it was still like so hard for me to like, just turn the other cheek for so much stuff. It's like, Oh, well would Batman be scrambling and would all these heroes be endangered by Omax? If you guys hadn't, you know, set loose brother, it's like, no, actually they, they wouldn't have. He probably wouldn't able to focus on other things and repair some relationships at a pretty, you know, tenuous point in his life oh would superman have been able it's like no he probably would have had time to do it if he wasn't busy putting out the fires you guys like i said just doused in gasoline yourselves so like i i do get it i do think that's the crux and i i i have to take the the text at its word there when it's just like no this was this was their fault like we barely had to do anything that is the depressing part like he said but i don't know man jerks are going to be jerks you know <laughs> so <laughs> But I, I guess like the fact that Brother Eye even exists in the first place, right? Born out yeah. of out of Batman's paranoia and 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 distrust. So, yeah, I like that. It just it would have been very easy to give the heroes an out, and yeah. then the story didn't. Yeah, I mean, partially, I suppose. Like because, like you said, they are definitely, <laughs> definitely, uh, you know, uh, you know, instigating and taking things further. But uh, it it doesn't totally give them that out, and I really did, mm -hmm. uh, I really did appreciate that. You know, so Alexander Luther is able to get this this uh, tower active and brings back Earth Two, and but it's unlike the other Earths that come back because we do get to the point in the story where where you know, and it's the the effect is 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 pretty cool of of all of these Earths popping up in the sky, and there's a great moment in particular where where Dick is at Titan's tower and he looks out and he just sees all of those Earths out there, very cool. But unlike those other Earths, which are repopulated with 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 everybody. Um, Earth 2 seems to only have uh, 
Earth to Superman and Lois Lane and uh, the uh, the other you know JSA characters who had originated there. Uh, and this is an interesting part of the story because this is where Earth to Superman and our Superman come into contact with each other after Lois Lane dies. As much as Earth to Superman thought this was going to be her salvation, it wasn't. And Alexander Luther knew that, but of course he was just playing Earth to Superman to for his own uh, for his own agenda. Uh, and this also leads to the This Is Your Life Superman three-parter that spanned the three current Superman titles at the time. It was the final issue of that Superman title, the final issue of Adventures of Superman. It then reverted back to its uh, original Superman title for one year later. Um, and the last Action Comics issue pre, you know, uh, or, you know, b before one year later. So very much the end of an era there. It was written by Joe Kelly uh, and, and drawn by a host of artists, uh, who's oh, many of whose work has had graced the Superman pages uh, before. So, I mean, a few different areas to go here, but I guess just big picture this this intersection of of our two Supermen. Um, well, I guess what what stood out to you the most about about this? Uh, I think this is probably my favorite moment from the book. Just like the pain in Earth Two Superman's eyes when he's like holding Lois, and like the way the pose mimics him holding Supergirl at the end of or issue eight, I guess, of of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it's like, that is like a really powerful scene, but like seeing Superman's reaction, I think is probably my favorite part of it, which is just like two small panels where it's just like him hearing someone yell Lois as loud as they possibly can, with all the glass breaking and everything just from the pain of Superman. And then just like no time to think he's already a blur, like going somewhere like at that moment, I think is just really effective storytelling because it's so simple, man. Like, it's just like, there, there's nothing easier to do than that two panel punch, but it just floors me every single time I see it. And uh, it, as for uh, this is your life, Superman, I unfortunately could not read the third part as we discussed, because it is not available on DC infinite for whatever reason. This story is beautiful, man. It's so confusing. Like just jumping into <laughs> this story, like with no like greater context outside of infinite crisis. And like, cause it's been a minute since I read a bunch of the Joe Kelly stuff. And so I'm like, trying to find like his voice in, in the writing. Um, but no, the first issue is just like a whole bunch of old pictures drawn by Tim sale. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. That's a great use of Tim sale right there. And then it just, all these different, like I couldn't tell which events were happening to which Superman. I didn't think that was especially clear, but like the fact that like it was happening to a Superman, like I immediately understood the significance of it. And I, I think that confusion might've been intentional, too right just to be like these characters aren't that different they're just from different times they they fought different battles right but they but they were fighting for the same side every time totally so th this is definitely one of one of my favorite portions of <clears throat> of this whole event so after earth 2 lois dies and he he lets out that whale and, and like you said earth 1 superman Journey. So I'm calling him Earth One Superman, but as we, as Alexander Luther realizes later in Infinite Crisis, it wasn't that that it was necessarily Earth One per se at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Earth, I, I suppose it, he was correct in that it was the basis, but it really was a new Earth that was formed at the anyway. But when the the two Supermen converge, Earth Two Superman, you know, instantly blames our Superman for what's happened to Lois. And in a great homage to Action Comics number one, the cover, oh, he's, he's got the yeah, green car yeah, that he's yeah. smashing into <laughs> Superman. And he's really just wailing on him. And so that sort of branches off 
into that, this is your life Superman three-parter where they're fighting. And I'll circle back to that. But um, when when things eventually calm down after Diana intervenes, right? She's gotten the advice from Earth to Wonder Woman and, and now she's she's helped. Superman needs her help, whether he wants it or not, right? And she's able to kind of help them calm down a bit. And what what I love is is our Superman saying saying to Earth to Superman to the effect of like Say it. Say it. It's no, we might be thinking wait, you go first. Um if if we're like at all besides the costume, I know how much you loved her. Yes. Like I'm, and I'm I'm sorry for you. I was just like, damn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, very powerful, and to just see that 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 empathy. But the other thing, um, so I was kind of thinking that, but more, but more so where I was going was um, this whole business, and this ties back to what you were saying before about you know, and kind of the parallels to you know, make America great again and all that, right? But this whole idea from Earth to Superman and from Superboy Prime, who you know, uh, wants his earth back, like this whole business about the other earths were better. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, and you know, Wonder Woman says something to the effect of, you know, you're, you want to bring your perfect earth. And, and our Superman says, if your earth was so perfect, you wouldn't need a Superman. Uh, which I thought was, was such a great moment. And when we talk about the Superman of it all, there's also this, this, scene where as Alexander Luther is activating his tower and bringing back Earth 2 and then later the other Earths, I think someone asked him, like, why do you still need Earth 2 Superman, right? And he explains that for reasons he can't explain, right, everything seems to come from Superman, which as the host of a Superman podcast, I love, great. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, obviously from a publishing perspective, it started with Superman, so that's a nice a nice nod there. And we're going to get to this in an upcoming episode, but when we get to Doomsday Clock, that's a huge piece of Jeff Johns yeah. and his sort of thesis on on the DC universe, right? This whole idea that it always begins with the rocket, the child in the rocket. So even here with that idea, I think you see that kind of you know come to fruition later on in, in his later work. I was going to ask if you counted that as a crisis event, and if that was yes. part of Red Skies. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very cool all right just, just making sure just making sure no it's no i'm glad you no it's true because a lot of thought went into what you know what counts and what, and what doesn't but yeah no that that one that one definitely does uh, and that happens immediately after the um heroes in crisis event right but that that's part of this too that will not be part of this <laughs> yeah that's kind of, that's <laughs> not, not, a lot, not enough not nearly enough red skies in, in that book so uh, it makes sense yeah no, I did. Well, you haven't heard it yet based on when we're recording, but we, we talked and identity crisis talked about why that one, that one counts, but heroes in crisis, we'll, we'll just set that one aside. Uh, but so again, sort of between the panels of the fight between the two Superman and infinite crisis, we have this three part crossover uh, that spanned adventures of Superman, Superman and action comics. And uh, yeah, it does start with that really beautiful Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, uh, Earth 2 Superman family album. It's really, really beautiful. And I had for- totally forgotten about it. And especially in light of of Sale's, uh, you know, very sad, relatively recent passing, it was so it was such a treat to look at that. Like, oh, we have more Tim Sale. It was really cool. There, It is a little confusing. I won't lie. It took me a little bit into the story before I was like, oh, okay, like I, I get the gist of this. So as the two Superman are fighting, they're essentially living or, or remembering or experiencing each other's life and mm-hmm. essentially criticizing the other one and, env- and envisioning what they would have done differently. So it's like they punch and then 
And I won't go through all of it, but it's an interesting story. <laughs> as much as one of the chapters is missing from the app, if, if anyone, if you have or you can get a hold of the Superman Infinite Crisis trade paperback, it has the whole story. And I, it also has that secret files issue as well. So th that is out there. It, it is an interesting story. So it's like, just as an example, Earth 2 Superman living our Superman's life when he battles Doomsday. This one kind of bothered me a little bit, but it's like he refuses to die. So it's like... <laughs> Say, and then he just like he gets back up because there's been this running theme that the death of Superman is where it all started to go downhill, right? This path mm -hmm. towards darkness. So it's like he refuses to die and he gets up and he continues to lead the DC universe. <laughs> uh, so it, it's sort of, it's sort of, you know, that that's sort of the gist of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's then it's just like, screw you, old man. This is what I would have done at the McCarthy hearings. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, Exactly. So. Yeah. Exactly. So again, it's it's definitely worth a read if anyone you know you can get your hands on it. And it is one of those things where we talk about how well constructed this event is. You cannot read that three parter. You don't miss anything, right? But if you do read that and you kind of fit it in during that battle between the two Supermen, it just kind of sheds some light on okay, what what were they each experiencing? What were they going through as those mm -hmm. as those fists were flying? So, um. Yeah, so I, I thought that was uh, that was cool, and and to see Earth Two Superman finally kind of come around, come to terms with how he's been led astray by by Alexander Luther. Mm -hmm. I, I I mean, obviously, I I, you're, I think you're right. Uh, like that quote is like, if your world was so perfect, it wouldn't need to. Is like the standout quote. But um, again, like I think the reason I just like so latched on to like if she was anything like my like if we're anything alike, uh, like I think the reason that's so powerful is like. They spent this entire time thinking that these people don't care, right? That they just like abuse this world that they live in, that they were given a gift that they just don't even covet whatsoever. Like they don't protect, they don't enjoy, they don't do anything. And so for that to be like, Superman has no questions, right? Like it's not like they have a conversation about like, what were you doing? It's like, he just says that, you know? And it's just uh, like, that to me is just so powerful where it's just like his immediate response is concern empathy apology and compassion and like that felt like a big turnaround especially compared to the beginning of the series where everything did seem so hopeless and, and doubtful yeah no well said it I, yeah i think that that exchange that moment really you know really speaks volumes and gets to the core the core of the character and, and forges this this connection point between them so mm. uh you know uh, someone had mentioned i think it was uh Rick on Twitter, but someone had mentioned after we did our crisis episode that there was a DC comics presents annual from 1982. That was a, was a earth one Superman earth Two Superman team up story. Uh, and I, I pulled it up on the app. It's on the app. Thankfully, uh, it's the, the Luthers of the two worlds team up and then uh, the Superman have to team up as well. Uh, I didn't have a chance to read it, but, uh, that's one that I, I do want to check out at some point, uh, kind of helping to set the stage for, the crisis on the infinite earths that was that was still to come filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals brightside tavern in jersey city hang on to your shorts in asbury park point lookout on long island and in the cut in bloomfield new jersey on a personal note my short film by spoon the jay mizell story played at these fests so i know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. 
Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. On the note of Luther, so our Lex doesn't, Alexander Luther, he has a ton of play in this. Our Lex, not a ton, but he does have a few key moments here. So in he faces off against the Lex Luther, who's been leading the secret society, right? And in battle, the uh, the holographic generator is is uh, damaged, right? And so Alexander Luther stands revealed. So that's where we get this moment that, oh, okay, this Lex who had been organizing all of the villains wasn't actually our Lex, uh, but was rather Alexander Luther pulling the strings. I thought the reveal here, because this is, we're cutting back and forth, the reveal of Alexander Luther as the head of the society, as well as uh, Batman reviewing surveillance fo- fo- footage from the Watchtower and realizing that Superboy Prime was the one uh, who had destroyed the Watchtower. I thought that reveal, obviously, you know, we're reading it years later, like we know, everything, you know, we know what was going on behind the scenes, but uh, I thought that was effective the way that that reveal was playing out for the characters at the end of that issue. Uh, for sure, yeah. And like that, I'm trying, trying to think how I want to say this. That was, I remember as a kid, like reading it when it was coming out, I was like, that was the part that finally made sense to me about, because like, I remember I was reading Superman Batman at the time and like that Lex Luthor seemed to like kind of go crazy. And again, this might just be like punch the timeline, punch the walls of continuity explanation, but it's like, oh, maybe it was uh, Alexander Luthor's uh, theta waves, extremely powerful theta waves that (laughs) (laughs) made Luthor uh, bananas uh, at at the end of uh, that first arc of Superman Batman. Well, he but, was also pumping himself full of kryptonite venom, so it could have been yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, but that was when he hinted towards a crisis that was coming, right? Like, I, I think I shared that with you on Twitter. I was just like, oh, yeah, I always think of this whenever I think of Infinite Crisis, because I remember this being in, like, a Wizard magazine spread where they were like, they laid the groundwork, Here, here's what you missed. Um, <laughs> but but no, that, that juxtaposition, I always think, is is really interesting. And, like, that it's so cheesy and it's so edgelordy, but that might be like one of my favorite scenes. Of the entire book is like the epilogue with, with Luther and a certain other character catching up with, with Alexander. But uh, the fact that like, it was our Luther who was setting, who was mockingbird in villains United. Yeah. Right. And, and was like organizing this, uh, this counter society. It's, I, I will say it probably a hundred more times on this episode, but like everything just tied together so beautifully. <laughs> like they just, they, the, the, the planning uh, just pay. It felt like there was a payoff every single issue. Yes. With, with, with reveals, which is just, again, I don't mean to sound like old man yelling at cloud, but like maybe I just did care more back then, but like, I don't know, man. Cause like rereading it now, I'm like, oh, this is, this is how you do it. This is, this is how you gas me up when you, when you tell me you got an event comic, this is how you do it. Yeah, no, I, I I can't disagree, really. And you know, you mentioned that moment at the end with with our Lex and Joker, uh, who catch up with Alexander Luther. He he escaped death at the hands of Batman, but Lex and Joker catch up with him. And 
uh, Joker enacts his revenge. And, you know, Lex has this great line. He's like, you know, you made a lot of mistakes to Alexander Luther. Uh, you made a lot of mistakes, but the biggest one of all, you didn't let the Joker play. And it was great because the Joker, we just see him once earlier on in the story, right? He's not a factor mm-hmm. here, but I thought that was a great payoff, right? He punishes Alexander <laughs> Luther for excluding him. But my hands down, and it's a page, my favorite Lex page on in this entire thing is after Superboy, Connor Kent has battled Superboy Prime and has been injured and he's in that rejuvenation recovery tank. tank. Recovery tank. Back to tank, yeah. <laughs> Lex shows up. And you know we haven't mentioned this yet, but now we, you know, we'll get into the Superboy of it all. Uh, and you know you don't have to add this to your reading list after tonight as well. But the, one of the other things leading into all of this was the storyline in Teen Titans, where Connor finds out that yes, half of his DNA came from Superman. The other half didn't come from Paul Westfield, Cadmus director, as he had previously thought, but was actually Lex. And Lex had you know reprogrammed him, and he fought the Titans, and it was a whole thing. And as we were starting Infinite Crisis, shaved his head, yeah, <laughs> shaving his head. And so as we start Infinite Crisis, he's Connor's just laying low on the farm, right? All this stuff is going on. The Teen Titans clearly need, could use his help, but he just doesn't feel like he's in a place to do that. He can't trust himself. He doesn't know who he is. All of that. But after he's fought Superboy Prime and he's he's recovering, and Lex shows up, and he says, you know, look at what that doppelganger did to you and he he has lex has discovered the the base of operations right in the arctic of of alexander luther and and superboy prime and he leaves the crystal with that information in superboy's pocket which he and dick grayson will later use to go to that tower right which we'll get to uh but lex calls him my son in this and it was so interesting to me because one of the things we talk about, and especially when we talk about Smallville, as we as we almost always do, the, the tragedy of Lex, right, that he, he's incapable of love. And especially the Lex as depicted on the television show Smallville, that he just, he's incapable of truly loving. And for a variety of reasons, if you watch the show, it's, it becomes very clear right. why, why he is the way he is, but this inability to love. And so you know, watching this scene, I get, or reading this scene, I guess you can, you can take it in a couple of ways. I definitely do not think there is any true love on the part of Lex towards Superboy. Maybe some, maybe some level of familial something. I think there's also pride, right? Of like, you come from me, right? It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, I love you unconditionally, but it's like, you come from me or uh, you, you know, a, a reflection or representation of me. But also that they both had been bested it to one degree or another by a counterpart from another earth. Like they had that, that shared experience there. Uh, I, I don't know. What was your read on, on that scene between Lex and, and Connor? Not even between cause Connor is unconscious, but <laughs> on Lex's part. I honestly thought it was because Lex felt like he lost everything. I thought it was like a genuine display of emotion where like he, I don't know if he invented the secret society, super like the, sorry, the, the injustice gang or, or, doom and whatever name you want to assign to it from over the years. Right. Like, I don't know if he is like the first person to come up with that or, or not, but like the fact that like he had everything stripped from him, the fact that like he's actually getting dumber, right. Like, and I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I mean, like they've talked about like Luther's theta ways. I wasn't just like a random joke. I made. like, that was like an exact quote about like interfering and like making things difficult for Luther's like, his power is his brain and he like didn't even have that. So he was completely just 
immobilized in, in this new world where he didn't get to contribute where like the dude always gets to contribute, you know, like he's no stranger to that. And so I thought it really was like, I have had everything taken from me. You're supposed to be the most powerful boy on the planet. You've had everything taken from you. Like I, I thought it really was like a genuine sign of affection and that he felt comfortable with that because like he did start viewing him as a son. No, I could get on board with that. Yeah, no, I think I, I think emotion. I would feel comfortable. Say, yeah, it's 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 the. I would stop short at, of of uh, of true love. But yeah, I think some yeah. some familial connection, something, uh, and it's it, it was a great moment. So, but while we're talking Superboy, so there's the Superboy Prime, right? And it was interesting because having very recently read the DC Comics Presents issue where he's introduced for the first time, and then reading Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, you know, you don't get a lot of Superboy Prime before this story, right? He's essentially a blank slate. And so I think that his his villain turn here, you know, it, it, it works. You know, I don't th- they feel like there's anything where it's like, oh, he's been established as this great hero. It's like there, we had gotten so little of him. And I think especially when you look at that crisis special and you see how he was manipulated and you see the toll that it took just seeing his world destroyed over and over. Uh, and also factoring in just the, the age, the immaturity, the inexperience, wielding his powers in particular, right? When he's fighting Connor and then the Teen Titans arrive and he massacres a lot of these lesser known, uh, you know, Titans characters. He can't control his powers. He's just lashing out. Oh, blames it on them too, which is my favorite part of him just being a tiny little jerk baby. You know, (laughs) he's just like, they made me do it constantly, which is such a petulant, childish thing to say for someone who's just like i'm supposed to be the world's greatest hero not you and it's just like dude you can't do anything like you, you don't know how to do anything yeah yeah and he's you know he's stuttering and connor even calls him out on that he's like stop mumbling you know spit it out uh but you know connor's journey through all of this uh it really even though we know he ultimately comes back from that you know th- through uh through the work of jeff johns in a later <laughs> in a later crisis event the final crisis legion of of three world story i felt his journey here connor's journey and his and his death in battle with superboy prime taking out that tower it really resonated in our zero hour episode we looked at the issue of the superboy series the zero hour crossover where Superboy Connor fights. Uh, just as a side note, it's very challenging doing this episode and having all of the different counterparts because like I constantly have to make sure I specify which one. But where where Connor Connor faces off against the pre-crisis Clark Kent Superboy, right? And this whole challenge of you're not the real Superboy. And then similarly here, that's Superboy Prime's whole thing. It's like you're not the real Superboy. You're not deserving of the mantle. And so another instance of this <laughs> poor Connor you know, being being challenged in this very fundamental way. And they have their first fight. And again, the Teen Titans intervene and Connor's left in that recovery tank. And then they have their rematch later at the tower. And this is where, where Connor meets his end. But in, in battle, he and Superboy cr- Prime crash through the tower, destroying uh, Alexander Luther's multiverse device. But... What, what, I mean, how how did Superboy's death uh, land land with you, especially on this reread? Um, I thought it was really effective because it was Wonder Girl, Nightwing, and Superboy, right? So, like, it was the the next generation of the, of the Trinity who were working together, which I don't think we'd seen the big three together at this point in the story, right? Like, I don't think they had, like, reconvened and, and sort of, like, buried. Like, I think they were working independently towards being okay, but they hadn't 
no no one said that they were okay at this point but the fact that like the next generation was just like had like next man up mentality right like they they were just like all right like no one else is here so i guess it's got to be us i i absolutely loved it um that that death like really i remember hit me as a kid because i also wore blue jeans and black t-shirts a lot at that at that tender age um and like i i was reading jeff johns's teen titans run because it's just like oh man like i've liked every book this dude has his name on like i'm, I'm just gonna like he's a snap by for me and so i was following that run and i became like really attached to those characters where like same thing at the same time with with the young avengers happening over at at marvel where it felt like this is my generation of heroes. Like these are going to be my heroes. And like I had an attachment to Batman and, and Superman. Like I grew up with those movies and cartoons and whatnot, but like they were my age and like they had very relevant concerns to me, you know? And, and so seeing him go down like that. And again, I, I, I think all the groundwork was done for, for Nightwing to die for Dick to die. And so for the fact that it just like zagged and then all of a sudden was Connor. And I love that he just had like the dumbest thing to say when he died. Cause he was a kid. He was just like, Hey guys, like that was pretty cool. Huh? Right. Like where, <laughs> like something similar to that was like his last words. And it's like, yeah, you're not going to say anything profound and deep. If you're on death's door as like a 16, you're like, you're 16. You haven't done anything. You know? So the fact that like those were his last words, I like rereading that now, especially I was just like, Oh, that's perfect. That's it, so beautiful that those were his last words. It is. And I, and I think it really harkens back to his earliest appearances, right? And with the leather jacket and it was always about being, yeah, about being cool. Right. Um, yeah, I, it, that one, that one really, it, it got me, it got me, even though I knew it was coming and I knew it would later be undone, but as, as you're reading it in that moment and just kind of taking it and, uh, especially factoring in where he was at this point and what he had been through. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I thought it was a powerful moment. I'm certainly glad he came back and glad it wasn't a, a lasting death, but for him to make that sacrifice in that moment, I thought it was powerful. There, there was, I've been, you know, really speaking about the story in glowing terms, one aspect relatively minor in the grand scheme of infinite crisis. And I actually, I like aspects of it, but I felt like the flash business felt a little, a little perfunctory. It felt a little bit like, Oh, it's a crisis. Barry Allen sacrificed himself in the first crisis. We gotta, we gotta do a little, little, little flash stuff here. But uh, I guess it's, it's after that initial battle with between Superboy Prime and Connor and the Teen Titans, where, where Bart and Wally and Jay show up, right, and and bum rush Superboy Prime, and they're running at super speed, and they're trying to shove him into the Speed Force, right? And Jay, of course, you know, mm-hmm. can't keep up. He's, he's, he's out. Uh, I mean, a few pieces here. And and I remember at the time this was right after Jeff Johns had left the Flash book and he had the, you know magnificent run on the Flash, and here Wally starts to get pulled away and he materializes before Linda and their newborn twins, and he talks about how she's his lightning rod and we've been through this before in the Flash book right where he disappeared into the Speed Force and eventually he was able to come back because she was the lightning rod all that. And so he's come, to, he's being pulled away somewhere he's, and he wants to say goodbye. And I, I did like this where Linda's like, no, we're a family, wherever you go, like we go together and they'll come back not too long from now. And the lightning strikes storyline, uh, the crossover between Jeff Johns's uh, justice society and Brad Meltzer's justice league, uh, he'll, he'll be back. But at the moment, this was a big mystery. It's like, well, what, what's become of Wally and, and family. And then you have Bart carrying on this battle against Superboy prime uh, I I did like the intervention of Barry 
from the Speed Force and Max Mercury and some of the other legendary speedsters. Like, I thought that was cool. And eventually they all disappear. Superboy Prime later emerges. Bart uh, has now been aged up and he's wearing a Flash costume. But again, I it just if to me it just felt a little a little tacked on. I don't know. It just felt like oh, we got to do something with the flashes. How, how did you feel about all that, dude? I hated those flashbooks so much. Like like the end of the Jeff Johns run was like great. I remember I think it ended with Rogue War, right? Like this yep. big epic six part crossover or not crossover, but six part story. I was just like, man, this is so cool. I can't wait to see what happens next. And God, that that Bart book was so bad, man. Like I try so hard to be positive on on my on my podcast and I feel bad not being positive on yours about this part, but like it was even man, bring it back to the OC. I think it was written by like Rachel Bilson's dad. Yeah. Danny like, Bilson. Who, yeah. Is her, I know. I, and I didn't make that connection until I think their rewatch podcast. I was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did he like wrote the original flash show? I think, or was it was like a writer on that? Yeah. Bilson and DeMeo, I think DeMeo has recently passed away, but yeah, they were a writing team and uh, yeah, they did the flash TV show together. And then I guess, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was meant to be a big deal. Like the creators of the flash TV show from 1990 are doing this, but I don't, I don't know how much that really resonated with people in the mid two thousands. I think that was around the same time Bob Gale was like doing Spider-Man books and they're like, look, we got it. We got a cool old writer too. Um, th- like those books were such bummer. I completely agree that this feels tacked on, but it also like so much of this event was about touching every aspect of the DC universe. And so like, it was in fact a c- sequel to crisis on infinite earth, but it was also just, this more than so many events feels like a celebration of every aspect of, of DC, right? Like where they do touch every possible outlet for, for storytelling. And it's like, you'd need to have a way to find flash or to have flash involved. I, I'm with you. I don't think this was the best use of it, but you're right. Like it was emotional seeing uh, Barry and, and Max and all the other speedsters pop out, but like, it really did seem like, all right, this guy's kind of a problem. How do we make him not a problem for a few issues so we can focus on other problems and then have him come back at the worst possible moment. Like it, it did seem just like a, a, tra- a trap door on a stage to hide an actor, or just to have them pop out, you know? Yeah. You know what it is? I think maybe the, I think for me, the problem was twofold. One was that so much groundwork had been laid for virtually everything else we were seeing in this story. Groundwork laid either in the story itself or in the, in the lead up material, right? Whereas the Flash stuff really, I don't know, really felt like it just kind of came out of nowhere. So I think there's a little bit of that. And then, I mean, also too, I didn't love where, and especially in retrospect, like I don't, I don't love where the flash story went where now Wally is off the board. Wally is my flash. I said it a million times. So it's like to have Wally off the board. I don't love that. And Bart, Bart works as a kid. Like That's the whole thing. So to age him up and I, I haven't read that entire solo series that he had, but I know it wasn't well received and I didn't love what, what I did read of it. So it's like kind of knowing where, what this was, was setting up. It just kind of felt like, eh, I, I could have done without this. It was cool. It got better just in time for him to die. Like I think it was Mark Guggenheim and oh, was it Tony Daniel? Was it Tony Daniel? It was. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I was like, I was like the Batman guy. Uh, yes, Tony Daniel who did like the the death of the Flash. And like I remember like tearing up at that when I was reading it the first time. But it was also like, why did this have to happen? And that is like when we were talking about Superboy uh, just being like a stand-in for like the angry comic book fan. You know, like. I, I I I might have felt some of that when I was reading that book in particular because I was a huge fan of Bart, huge fan of Wally. I was just like, so wait, you you got rid of Wally to 
age up Bart to make him the guy, and then you're getting rid of him 13 issues later. Like, just make it make sense, guys. This doesn't make sense to me right now. But, um, but that I mean, I guess that's the power, right? Like, you think, like, man, that Superboy Prime is such a jerk, and then all of a sudden, like, you are Superboy Prime. <laughs> you know, you are complaining and, and throwing your fists up, and you're not punching the walls of reality, but you are you're punching your keys on your keyboard, and you're t- typing into a forum because it was 2006, and that's what we did. I re- you know, I, I remain a bit split on this. I mean, it's less so here. I feel like in later Superboy Prime appearances, they play this up more the idea of him as the stand-in for the angry fanboy, right? I mean, here you definitely see the seeds for it, but it doesn't feel as in your face as it later becomes. But I guess I'm a little split because on the one hand, especially in the context of this story, it is interesting to to sort of, in story, address some of the criticisms against comics generally, especially when you talk about the 90s and then the more extreme 90s and these are darker, more violent. And then, and then again, even in the early 2000s in the DC and, and Identity Crisis, I think, you know, really stands out as one of those ones that, you know, a little bit of a lightning rod for all of this discussion. So to kind of take what has been said about comics and have it come from one of the characters in the story as an indictment on the, ca- on the other characters, there's something interesting about that. I think there's a line, though, and I feel like when it veers too much into Superboy Prime just as whiny comic mm-hmm. fanboy i i don't love that as i don't get a ton of mileage out of that i hear i think it's balanced really well here because i think alexander luthor is the stand-in for editorial right it's just like i can just fix everything just let me <laughs> let me let me get my fingers in there rearrange some things and uh i don't know if that was supposed to be uh dan to die or, or not but um the, the fact that like he was just you know playing maestro to a whole new universe and, and thought he could fix things um, I, I think they work really well together, but I, I agree that like it just becomes like too obvious. I think it was like just subtle enough here, and I'm probably applying because like he came back, Superboy Prime came back in Sinestro Core War, I yep. believe that was like his next appearance, and that is when he's just like way more, way more whiny brat kid who's just like you're doing it wrong, you're doing my stories wrong. Um, and so I'm probably retroactively applying that to to my interpretation of this story, but I do think it is a little more classy here than, than in later interpretations. Yes. Yes. So I mentioned I had some Patreon uh, questions from uh, one of our patrons, Brian Dempsey. So we addressed again, some of the changes between the single issues and the collected editions. Uh, He asked, would we do a breakdown of the changes? I mean, I mentioned a couple, like I said, I, I I would refer people to, I'm sure this has been documented elsewhere Uh, and we're already at the two hour mark. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Brian also says, I recall Superboy Prime carving the S into his chest, which he does at the end uh, after he's in captivity. And he says the wound looking like uh, Clark at the beginning of season three of Smallville. Uh, to your knowledge, is this ever followed up in any of Superboy Prime's future appearances that that S carved onto his chest? I don't remember offhand. We will be covering Superboy Prime next year, so I'll have a better answer then. I don't know. Do you remember? Not to my note, because like he shows up for Sinestro Core War, and that's when he's wearing, I think, the anti-monitor armor again. Okay. Right? And then I don't think he appears again after that until Final Crisis Legion of Three Worlds, right? I think also, so. Are you, treating, are you treating that like a separate event from Final Crisis? Yes, we will not be hitting that in, in, this, in the Red Skies. Right. We'll be doing Final oh. Crisis, but no, Legion of Three Worlds I have other plans for. Cool. It was just because, like, I remember at the time being like, oh, Final Crisis is, like, the big one. I'm like, yeah, this is the one that makes sense. This is the straightforward crisis that's coming out at the same time. Um, I love that, but I love Final Crisis so much. I think it's maybe the best one. It's just not my favorite one. And that took a lot of rereads and a lot of time on Reddit to, like, 
actually figure out what was going on, but I got there. I got there. Um, no, to my knowledge, I, I don't think they really ever played it up again. And I wonder too, if that was like trying to imbue some of that, that early Connor where it was just like, Hey, I'm hardcore. Hey, I'm edgy. Hey, I'm cool. And like, they're, they're not much more hardcore and cool than I guess, like <laughs> self mutilation just to prove how uh, tough and Superman you are. Right. Like, I, I like, the, cause like they took everything away from him. And he's just like, no, you can't take this away from me. Like he literally carved it, tattooed it into his body. And so it was just, I think trying to hold on to his identity. I, that was my interpretation, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Well, you know, let's circle back to that idea. Cause when we get to that final showdown, uh, on on Mogo, maybe maybe that accounts for it. Where Superman says it doesn't matter. Well, we'll get to it. Uh, and then Brian's last question. Speaking of, what do you think of Superboy Prime's outfit? I guess the monitor he's referring to. Uh, the monitor armor. Is there any functionality to it, or just for show? Yeah, there is. It is functional. It is channeling yellow sunlight into his body, so it's sort of supercharging him. Uh, so, I, I guess real quick, because I want to get to that that our our finale and the and this this final battle here <clears throat> among the Supermen. So kind of tying all of this together and looking at the four corners of the DCU as we get deeper towards the end now of Infinite Crisis, um, especially after that tower is destroyed and we no longer have all of these Earths in the sky, we do get we do get a little continuity business here as Earths do consolidate into, into new Earth and we are shown some shards. Uh, most notably for me in particular is seeing a young Superboy, right, in one of those shards. And is, I think it's Alexander Luther who talks about the changes to the timeline, right? Where Wonder Woman is now once again a founding member of the Justice League. That mm-hmm. had been changed post-crisis. It had been Black Canary. Now it's once again Wonder Woman. Uh, now Joe Chill was the was the murderer of the Waynes and had been apprehended, right? I think that was the other, other big uh, highlight of the New Earth changes that were articulated, right, in Infinite Crisis. I think so. And I feel like they did that because... Batman Begins had come out the year before, right? And they probably wanted some like cross cross promotional synergy there, right? Probably. Probably. And then again, uh, just as the the four corners. I mean, we talked about the assault on Brother I. Uh the the magical characters, uh, we do I mean, I, I do have to mention this because I I was a massive, massive Gotham Central fan. And uh Chris Allen becomes the new Spectre in this series. Uh, a very brief moment. Uh, I guess the the Day of Vengeance special shines a little more light on it, where Naboo uh, now divorced from his host. Right? They have this Spectre and 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 Naboo have this fight, and I felt like this was a little wonky. But like fate na- enrages Spectre to the point where Spectre's going even more crazy than before, and and that that is enough to catch you know, catch the, uh, the attention of the quote unquote higher authority who now forces Spectre to be bonded to a host again. So it's like, he wasn't causing enough trouble before God needed a little bit more before he was that, like, no, you need a host. Like, what? You're I'm, I'm right there with you, man. That, that was my thing. I was just like, oh, this is too far. Okay. Gotcha. But like he killed hundreds, if not thousands of people, uh, completely brutalized the entire rule of magic, you know, killed abstract concepts at some point. Didn't he? kill chaos and order too <laughs> like it's just like oh that that wasn't oh but it then kill kills his helmet who signifies the end of the ninth age of Matt. like that that part i was a little iffy on. you know actually in, in thinking about it more all these specials i think they're really interesting to see in the sense that i was like oh it's like when you find a tv show you like that has 18 seasons you just want to watch it all but like man a lot of these didn't pay off the 
best. And or like I think maybe the execution came down short. Because you're right, like there wasn't a whole lot of Spectre. Like it came down to like a line of like, oh, we need magic to fuel and it's just easier with like its raw form. So like I think the Day of Vengeance miniseries was excellent and entertaining, but like did it really matter for Infinite Crisis? Yeah, I mean I feel like I also feel like magic powering the tower. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's they said it, so it's true, but not very uh, Luthery though, right? Not very Luthery. Yeah, that one felt like a little bit of a stretch. And then I don't know, part of me feels like, oh, this was anticlimactic, but on the other hand, I'm like, oh, it's actually kind of amazing where in Infinite Crisis, when the the, the magical characters summon the new this new specter, right? Because they want him to fight. They want him to to intervene and help, and he ends up just smiting the worst of them. And I'm like, that's actually because it's like, do you, do you really want to see this turn into the specter taking care of everything? No. So I actually thought that was that was pretty clever. I wonder how much too if that was like Jeff Johns sort of clearing house because he's about to do like the the I forget what it's called the War of Light right where it's like all the different uh like the seven different colors of like the spectrum. Because, like, he kills the Star Sapphire, so then Carol can become Star Sapphire again for, for 2814, right? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. But I thought that was I thought that was kind of funny. But And I don't mean to nitpick, but even that Day of Vengeance special, it, half of it is the Shadow Pact rounding up the seven deadly sins who had escaped the Rock of Eternity, right? Mm. Cool. And that's a direct continuation of Day of Vengeance. But then the other half is this Dr. Fate Spectre battle. And I just feel like well, it's the same problem that I had with the Day of Vengeance miniseries where it's all about the Shadow Pact until the climax. And then it's the, the Wizard Shazam versus the Spectre. It's like, whose story is this really? And then the Villains United special, you know, Infinite Crisis culminates on Earth, at least with uh, the Villains you know, staging these prison breaks across the globe, right? And this big battle in Metropolis. So the Villains United special shows you how they carried out these prison breaks. So it's it's entertaining, but at the same time, again, whose story is this? The Villains United, we were primarily following the Secret Six, right? The ones who didn't join the society. And then they're barely in the Villains United special. I think the problem was that the miniseries we're setting up infinite crisis. These specials were like I said earlier, deleted scenes and like a lot of really good movies have deleted scenes and like they're better because they cut out scenes, right? Like you don't, you t- turns out you don't like every idea you have is in a home run, a plus idea. So you, there's something to leave on the cutting room floor. These little one shots, I think they really serve the, the fallout books that are coming post infinite crisis. And like these are showing like, Oh, Hey, like you think things move a little too fast in the main series? Like, okay, we got you covered here. Oh, you um, you, you you want to see what's coming next? Oh, there's an OMAC book coming. Oh, there's a <laughs> there's Shadow Pact. There there's all these things, and so I, I that felt a little more less creative influenced, more business influence. Whereas I think the miniseries generally did a good job of being creative decisions as opposed to monetary decisions. And like obviously everything's a monetary decision, but like it, it, you don't feel it all the time. And when you don't feel it, those those are the ones. Those are the winners. Well said. And, you know, we talked about that last week when we went through the four miniseries where I felt like they held up and they told their own stories. Yes, they were setting the table for what's to come, but they worked in and of themselves. I, I think your description of the specials as more of deleted scenes, I, I think that's that's pretty apt. I will say I probably liked the OMAC special the most, right? Because that I think still falls in the category of deleted scenes, but it felt like a more relevant 
continuation, right? So Brother I crashes and then tries to enact this Lazarus protocol to save itself. And so like that, that was kind of interesting. It felt like more of an extension as opposed to just something that you didn't really need to see, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, the Ram Thanagar special is really funny because it's just like, oh, like, you know, is all, everyone in space, you know, it's basically like World War One in space, right? Like all, every single different planet had like a protectorate packed with either Ran or Thanagar. And so like that was the, the big issue. And then they find evidence that like Ran wasn't responsible for the destruction of Thanagar, that it was Superboy because they see like a, a flash or whatever. And then they lose the satellite, they lose the image and like, oh, that sucks. And they go to Thanagar and then they find like his handprints or whatever, like, like Hollywood Walk of Fame style from like where he pushed it. And so it's just like, Okay, that's how you got them to stop fighting each other and then to concentrate their fire on the uh, space hands. I, like, okay, cool. Yeah. But, exactly. then, yeah. but no one who was a main character really in, in the miniseries was like a main character in the specials too, which I think is what you were alluding to with like with, the, with Naboo. And like, I guess Sasha kind of, but like mm. she kind of stopped being a main character halfway through that book when it became about like Wonder Woman and, and, uh, and, and Superman. And so, like, it is interesting that, like, we, we're getting the story from new perspectives. But again, like, that's, you know, mileage varies on whether that's effective or, or good or what you like. Totally, totally. Uh, uh, one quick thing. I did like the battle uh, between the heroes and villains uh, at the end of the story in Metropolis. We do get a return appearance by Doomsday and our Superman and Earth 2 Superman have their, their team up moment. So that was I enjoyed that aspect. Uh, but then ultimately we have this final showdown of Superman and Earth 2 Superman versus Superboy Prime. Now, you know this is a top-notch story because we have super characters going into the sun. You know I love this. What's amazing here is normally we get this in the context of Superman needing to be thrown into the sun in order to recharge, get his powers back. Here, very interesting spin on it. Uh, (laughs) Rather than going in that direction, they flipped it, and the two Supermen take Superboy Prime through Krypton's red sun in order to uh, remove his powers. And then they are ultimately caught by the living planet Green Lantern uh, called Mogo. And we have this final battle here where Superboy Prime pummels Earth 2 Superman to death. He'll have his his death moment uh, shortly, but uh, really is just, uh, you know, literally beats him to death. And then this final battle Probably well, one of my one of my top scenes of this entire miniseries between our Superman and Superboy Prime, and this is where Superman you know grabs the S on Superboy Prime's chest right, and it, and it rips off, and this this is where he delivers this great speech because Superboy's like Superman says you don't know what it means to be Superman, you'll never be Superman because you don't know what it means to be Superman, and Prime is like of course I do, I come from Krypton, better Krypton than yours. Superman says, it doesn't matter what planet you come from or what powers you have or what you wear on your chest. And as he's saying this, he's just knocking, knocking Superboy Prime around, delivering these, these uh, potent blows. And then he delivers my favorite line, it's about what you do, it's about action. And I think is a great payoff and full circle moment to where we started here, where he's plagued by this inaction on the moon having this philosophical debate, standing in the Daily Planet offices, looking at the framed photo of, of his death. To, to come this way, he's, he led the charge, right, at various other points in the story, in the Battle of Metropolis, and, and to now have this moment here, I just, I don't know what else to say other than I love it. And I think it really encapsulates the character. 
Well, that, and it was a nice little coda for Superboy, too, right? Like, because it was also plagued by an action, right? Until until Superboy Prime got permission to to show up, and then, like, he stepped up. And, and then, like, you know, he, he he blew up the tower. Like, Superman wasn't there. Superman didn't stop the tower. You know, Superman wasn't there to to save the day, in, at least in that regard. So, like, that did come down to Superboy and and his... Actually, like, no, you're that that's a that's a great point. And I, I do love like the it's, it, the layering of the story where, again, like there is a moment of of pause for all these characters that have super in the title. Right. Like where it is Superboy Prime and, and Superman from Earth too, just like staring at the TV the same way Connor is staring at the TV. Right. The same way uh, Clark is staring at like the news headline that you that you referenced earlier about like Superman dies, all this stuff. And it's just like all these people caught up in a world that seems so much bigger than them, despite them being the most powerful thing in any world there ever. It's just, it's really symmetrical. It's really tight. And like, I like that it is ambiguous and it's just like there for you to think about, but like has no definitive answers. So that, that Jeff Johns knows how to work a typewriter. I tell you, and I don't think we spent enough time talking about Phil Jimenez who like, we didn't spend any time oh, really. You're right. <laughs> oh my God. So for like, I, I personally think the Metropolis battle is dumb. Like it's just so, I don't think it was needed, but like, it looks so good. I'm like, just so happy it's there. Right. And then like, even the fill in stuff, which I know, like you mentioned was like incompleted art at the time that has since been fixed, man, it looks really good. Like <laughs> Jerry Ordway, uh, probably, probably an unsung hero, um, in, in the comics industry. So maybe not on the, maybe not on this podcast, but <laughs> on, on other podcasts. No, but yeah, I mean, so, well, so those unfinished pages, those were, if I'm not mistaken, those were Jimenez pages. It was just that again, yeah, they weren't, uh, you know, they just kind of threw that red layer over it. Uh, but, but Perez and Ordway did most, if not all of those earth two sequences. And I think they kind of stepped in it in other places as well. I'm not sure exactly how it all broke down, but, uh, yeah, I mean the, the book looks great and especially in its fully finished version, I think in the collected edition, uh, you know, it, Perez and, and Jimenez, very similar styles, able to handle the, the the multitude of characters and not just that they can handle it, but we seem to relish it and 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 it really did a magnificent job. And you know, Jimenez always felt like such a such a successor artistically, right? So to have him do the sequel felt felt perfect. And like you were saying before, I mean it's visually it is it is dense. I mean, this I feel like opens up more in certain places than the original crisis did where that was, man, it was just so bad. I mean, I know we talked about this. It's like, it was just so packed Um, here. I feel like there was a little bit more variety, but there was still, I mean, there was a lot that they were, they were packing in, but uh, yeah, just absolutely, you know, absolutely gorgeous. My one nitpick, not art wise, but story wise, (laughs) nitpick about my favorite scene of it's about what you do. It's about action. And I know I've said this before, but I just, I don't think that Superman should have totally, fully fallen to the ground. I feel like he should have caught himself and have been down on one knee. Like, one knee, head down, as close to falling as possible. But I feel like he should have held himself up. Now, even before the the Red Sun, they went through this wave of, of kryptonite, right? Out in space, the, the, the debris of Krypton. So I get it. And he's had this battle with Superboy Prime. I totally get it, but I don't know. I feel like there would have been something to him catching himself, not fully falling. I've oh, it's been all these years. I always go back to that. Yeah, but it wasn't there that line about like everyone makes mistakes, even Superman. Like the, the fact that like he's not as strong as Superboy 
prime, right? Or like, you know, like like you said, it doesn't matter. Like I'm from a crypto on a better crypto is like, it doesn't matter where you're from. And like, I, I don't know. I think there's something, I, I'll be honest, I didn't have like a, a deep reading of this scene the way you did, but just in hearing you talk about it, I'm like, I, I hate to just come off as devil's advocate. I'm like, no, I kind of like the idea of a Superman that falls because the next thing Superman does is, is stand up, right? No, that's a good point. No, no, no. I No, I, that is a good point. And, you know, the cavalry shows up and you've got the Green Lantern Corps and they zap up all the kryptonite and all that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like him falling face, <laughs> face planting. Sure. I just, I never love that. But your point is well taken. I, I think there is something to that. But yeah, I mean, to, to see him step up. Now, of course, he'll be powerless for the next year until we get to that uh, up, up and away storyline <laughs> in the Superman books. But uh, yes, yeah, and then Earth to Superman himself, he gets that. You know, he gets his final farewell and, and we get that beautiful, uh, you know, image in the sky of of him and, and Earth 2, Lois. And, you know, as Lois was dying, she was trying to explain something to him that he didn't really get. And then in his own death scene, he finally seems to grasp this idea of like, no, like we're we're still here. Right. I guess some some sense of, you know, what what's to come after this, that even though, you know, they they it won't be like it was in that you know, Alexander Luther, quote unquote, heaven that they were trapped in for all those years, but, but that there's still this sort of spiritual sense that they'll, they'll be part of them and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll see them and all that. Um, yeah, that was a nice moment. I agree. And, uh, as someone who's had existential crises before, someone who is just, you know, battled with the fear of mortality, it was, it was nice to see like a moment like that, like, oh no, like we, we, we stick around, like I don't know, just the idea that like it finally makes sense is something that has given me, remember it giving me solace when I was a kid and I was scared of dying and gives me solace now as I'm older and statistically much more likely to die than I was when I was 14. So I don't know, like it was, it was a really beautiful moment and it just, something about the fact that it was coming from that Superman, like really made it like, I don't know, like, do I trust earth Two Superman more than, than my earth Superman? I don't, I don't know. Do you? No, I don't, I wouldn't say that I do, but, but yeah, there's a certain stature, certain gravitas to Earth 2 Super. He's the golden age Superman. He's the first. So yeah, I mean, there, there kind of is something to that, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely, my reading of it is definitely that whatever, whatever he and his Lois perceived in their final moments, I like to think that, yeah, it's not it's not what it was before where they're essentially watching television of what's unfolding. Right. It was something more, you know, something more fundamental and elemental. I I like that. I like that idea. (laughs) They were in the white room from the matrix, right? Like that's, that's where they were (laughs) like, yeah, uh, for for sure. And so like the, I don't know, is, is that better than them being written off into heaven? Like, do do you feel like this is like a better closure than the ending for uh, crisis on infinite earths? That's a good question. Um, it's hard to say because I feel like at the end of Crisis, I was good with their ending at that point because you didn't really know what what, what they were going toward. And so you you can sort of fill in the blank for yourself for whatever you think, quote unquote, heaven would be for them. Mm-hmm. Then knowing what it what it actually was, Right, that they and and it's. I know I've talked about this before, but we, we we had a number of television shows. I feel like even more so recently, where shows have ended with the with the main characters dying, and then you see them in the afterlife, and it's just. 
I, and I, you know, and I'm not, not to get too religious or philosophical or whatever, but like that idea, I get the appeal of it that you would be in a place where you're reunited and you can see everything. But I don't know when you just factor in this idea of, of eternity, I don't know. Like just like being in a place where you're just con- like, just, you can just see everything. I don't know. I, I, so, uh, and I, I've talked about the show The Good Place before, and I, I'll just recommend that show again. I think that made a, a a really interesting point about what an eternity like that might might ultimately might what the drawback of something like that might ultimately be. That there there is something necessary about about a true ending or finality. Anyway, uh, so given that we now know where where the where they had gone off at the end of crisis no i feel like this is this is a, is a better a better farewell but i don't know what about you i think i think crisis on infinite earths it's it's like a child's idea of a good ending and i i don't mean that like disparagingly but like it it feels like oh like they get to go someplace where they get to live forever and then like this feels more like an adults like you're right where there is like a, a sense of revolution right like or like completion and uh i guess maybe ascension like i i don't know what it's like to die personally but like i don't, I don't know like this did feel like as the medium matured i i guess like also expectations matured too and th- this did feel like a a, a more beautiful send-off than the rather again i'm not being disrespectful when i say this but like simplistic ending of of crisis on infinite earths right yeah and it's I mean, it's well. Although, I, again, I, I don't. Really, I, I wish I had a better memory of my initial reading of the first Crisis because mostly I, my memories of it are after having read Infinite Crisis, so after knowing where they actually went to. Because uh, I, I would be curious, and again, audience, would love to hear from you for people who read it as it was originally coming out, long before Infinite Crisis. Kind of, what did you think? Like, I wonder how many people thought, "Oh, they're." they're in another dimension and they'll probably come back sometime versus no, they're really going to heaven or whatever DC's equivalent of heaven is or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I, but I agree with you. I think this is a more, you know, more, I guess, sophisticated kind of wrap up for them. Poetic. Yeah. Yeah. And that they're together. That's the, that's the most important point and what, in whatever sense uh, that that is. Uh, So, you know, most of the rest of this, the, the Luther Joker bit uh, Superman being depowered, the Trinity sort of being in a much better place and each going off in their uh, journey of self-discovery. Batman, Bruce is going to retrace the steps that he took originally. He's going to quote-unquote rebuild Batman, but this time he's going to have Dick Grayson and Tim Drake with him. Uh, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman's going to seek some perspective. Clark, t- you know, touches his glasses and, you know, you know, kind of hinting at maybe you want to try a secret identity, which of course she will as we head into uh, the one year later era. Oof, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Not not a fan of that book personally, but I, I haven't read it since I was 16. I was a huge fan of the Rucka book when it was out. So I, I think I was also like hesitant to change. So I, I should revisit it. And what a great time now that I'm about to reread 52 and Identity Crisis and just convert my Marvel show into a DC show overnight because <laughs> because of you, Anthony. Is my plan all along. And and we <laughs> and we end on Superboy Prime, right? Imprisoned by the Green Lantern Corps, has carved the S onto his chest, and this ominous note of I've been in, in worse places than this, right? Because he was. He was in the heaven dimension and he was wherever the flashes had, you know, had had taken him. Because it wasn't actually the speed force, right? Am I 
I thought they took him through the Speed Force to some place. I thought they, didn't they hold him in a red sun too? It was something like I don't know because I don't think they ever say it like explicitly here. I'm assuming we get more context in a subsequent story. Uh, I just don't have it top of mind. But in any event, where the Flash has had him, where he was after Crisis, you know, he has gotten out. So that's the note we end on. It's like I've been in worse places than this, and I've gotten out. And that's Infinite Crisis. <laughs> Which I, I do on my, when I do like movie episodes on my show, I'm always like grade for it then, grade for it now. And I'm wondering how I would grade it. Like, I think back then I probably would have given it like a B plus just because like, I remember like the delays. Like I remember uh, like trying not to be like bothered by it because like uh, art, you can't rush it. It takes how long it takes, but uh, just like, bumming out and like forgetting and like i used to like oh issue two comes out let me reread issue one oh issue three comes out let me reread issue one and two before three comes out and then like by the time like it's just like oh man like i gotta dig those up i don't even know where those are because this issue five came out so long ago you know um but like man in, in totality and getting to revisit every book this is a plus man like i think this is event comics at its finest i think this is the argument for why there should be events more often, maybe not annual, you know, but like you f- find a story that you can really commit to and, and you believe in, because it feels like everyone working on this book believed in this story. No, I, well said, I, I, you know, at the time I, I again, as excited as I was going into infinite crisis when it was done, I, like, I don't want to go so far as to say, Oh, I was, I was let down, but I definitely, I didn't come out of it feeling as as high on it as I did at the beginning, right? Or as I thought I would at the end. And I think, yeah, perhaps the delays. Uh, again, I think things like the reveal at the end of issue one, you know, being intrigued by it, but it not really meaning that much to me to see Earth 2 Superman, right? As much as, you know, it was interesting to see where it went, but at the time. So I think there were a few things along the way. I think also... I, I I don't know. I, I wish I remembered more, but I feel like I was probably expecting more continuity reworking. I, I was, you know, I was probably thinking that there was going to be more, there were going to be more changes established in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now I, I'm really just more curious again about the, the characters and the themes and, and how this all ties together. But so I, I think ultimately any sort of dampening of my enthusiasm the first time around probably just had to do with whatever expectations I had about what this was going to be. So now uh, I definitely appreciate it. Um, and I think for me personally, when we talk about these crisis level events, I I think this is the sweet spot. And yes, there is the factor of my age and I was following all the books at the time, but this also felt, and again, we'll get to, to final crisis shortly. You know, final crisis didn't feel and this could be a plus or a minus. I, I could definitely see it from the perspective of being a plus. But Final Crisis to me didn't feel as plugged into the DCU at the moment, right? Whereas this really, and and especially I was following almost all of the books. So mm-hmm. to then, you know, to then read this event that was paying off and referencing all of that stuff that I was following, it was very satisfying. Um, as opposed to something like Final Crisis, which again, felt more outside, which could be a positive because you look at it now and and that's something that I think there is a lot of value in being able to read a book like that more in a vacuum as opposed to something like this where, you know, we're talking about all of this, this lead up material and all that stuff. We had fun with it, right? But 
someone else might look at it and be like, oh, I'd rather something that I can just kind of read more. Just jump in, into. In a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I can see it from both perspectives. I wonder too, like, I think this event, like, I, I wasn't disappointed with the event. I think I was disappointed after the event where like, do you remember that episode of Parks and Rec where like, you know, Leslie has like the, the Pawnee like harvest festival or whatever. And then like the next episode, they're like, you did a great job. What's next? And she's like, dude, I kind of like <laughs> got to pull that all the stops for that thing. Um, where I was just like, God, Infinite Crisis was so good. So like, what's next? And like, there was a, like a JLA relaunch that happened after this, the Brad Meltzer, Ed Bennett. Yes. Yep. yep. Uh, book that was good, but also like not quite what I expected. And, you know, Jeff Johns, I think relaunched JSA shortly after this. And like, there, there was stuff to look forward to for sure. But like, you're right. Final Crisis kind of just feels like crisis in name only. Like it, it didn't feel as like tethered to the the ongoings of the DC universe at the time. Like you know, John Jones shenanigans aside, but like I think that's when I got into Marvel because it's like everything felt like it directly fed into the next event, and like that became a problem because I'm like, dude, like I cannot keep up with all these books. And so like a- after a while, like at the time I was like, 15, I 16, I didn't buy drugs, so I had like a money to spend on <laughs> comics you know like i was too scared to smoke pot so all my money went to comics and video games at the time and uh yeah like it was just i, I think that was like the, the the tunneling of me over to marvel just it felt like it mattered more even though i think dc like I was talking about this on another podcast i do a video game podcast where i'm like i'm way more critical of dc than i am of marvel does that mean i like dc more because i care more <laughs> That's an interesting question. I know. I well, there there might be something to that. But yeah, you bring up a good point because I I I think I kind of had a similar experience with a lot of what followed from Infinite Crisis. I won't go through everything, but like Wonder Woman's a good example. I was really all in on that Greg Rucka run uh, leading up to Infinite Crisis, and the run that followed. Going back to the OC is really a theme on this, but Alan Heinberg Heinberg. (laughs) wrote that first arc and that was fun, but I, he only wrote that first arc and then I quickly lost interest. There was that whole Amazon's attack thing. And I just, you know, I wasn't really into it. And I feel like there were other instances. Well, even JSA, I, although I have come around a little bit more because I, I reread the thy kingdom come arc from justice society of America, but big picture, I vastly prefer the pre-Infinite Crisis JSA series to the post-Infinite Crisis Justice Society of America series, both written by Jeff Johns. But so, you know, a few. So I think there's a few instances like that where, you know, I wasn't I wasn't too hot on what came after, and that probably colored at the time colored the perception of Infinite Crisis as well, because it's this, you know, this big moment, and then you know, what followed maybe didn't light my fire, so that kind of reflected back on on, on Infinite Crisis. So mm-hmm. it, your point is well taken, but no, overall I, I'm, I'm very happy and relieved. Like I really had as much of, of crisis on infinite earths was, you know, like a slog to get through. Like I had, su- it was such a delightful reread of this. Um, that was, it was just a great time. So, you know, I know we didn't, we didn't hit like every single beat of infinite crisis, but I think we hit the big ones and certainly the most Superman centric ones. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from folks what aspects of the story you know resonate the most with you. Uh, but George, I really thank you so much for doing all of that <laughs> rereading and coming on here. I guess last two questions. Uh, number one, uh, is there anything about this event <laughs> that we didn't talk about that you wanted to? We'll start there. I don't 
I don't think so. I think we did a good job of covering everything. I, I took us on a couple tangents and I apologize for that. It's probably why we have a, a slightly longer <laughs> runtime than the average show. Not, not every show, but the, the average. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I, th- I think we pretty much hit everything. Um, the Jim Lee covers. I, I remember like, yes, the, yes. I'm trying to decide between like the George Perez and, and the Jim Lee covers. I remember like that was like a really stressful part of my life because this, I think this is like the first comic book I remember seeing that was three ninety nine, which like most books were between two twenty five and two ninety nine at that time. So I was like, oh man, like I could do the, I could get both of these covers or I could get three other books. Cause like 52 was about to come out and that book was two fifty for the entire run. And so it's just like, got to make some financial important financial decisions here. Um, I think I, I think I alternated and then eventually went back and collected the whole set. Nice. The nice thing about working at my local comic shop was that, well, one of the many nice things was the discount. So I went, I went for both covers, but that was very unusual for me. Like I, then and now like that really, I, I I can't think of many, if, if any other instances where I've done that, but for this, I Mm. was just like, so into it. Uh, and yeah, those Jim Lee covers, all the covers, but those Jim Lee ones in particular were just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, so the last question, uh, for folks who want to check out short box summary, where would you like to direct them? Oh, please go to Shortbox summary on Twitter or search Shortbox summary on your preferred podcast platform of choice. Um, like Anthony talked about before, and like I, I said at the top of the show, all we do is talk about the mid two thousands, man. This is me going back and revisiting the books I was reading in high school, trying to figure out if they are good or not. If I was just a dumb 15 year old, if I have rose tinted glasses now, I try to have on a varied mix of people who, uh, were there, who were reading comics at the time, people who were seeing the movies I talk about at the time. Oh, people who've never read a comic book before working professionals in the comic book industry, try to get as many people from as many different walks of life as I can to come on the show to talk about stuff. We just did our big 50th episode for house of M where I think I talked to like six or seven different people for like little 15, 20 minute bursts, just getting as many different takes on house of M as I could. And that was super fun and uh, exhausting to organize. So I, uh, I I'm taking most of the month of August off, but I'll be back soon with the fallout from house of M. Excellent. Well, I hope <clears throat> part of me was two and a half hours and losing my voice. Um, I hope uh, <laughs> I hope everyone will check out the show. Uh, it was great to meet you and uh, to have you on the show, and hopefully we can uh, connect again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, audience, thank you as always for tuning in. We will be back next week with a discussion of the 52 weekly series that followed Infinite Crisis and filled in what happened during that year after Infinite Crisis before one year later. And as I've said before, I have not read this yet. I did not read it. This will be my first time. I'm very excited. So that will be next week. I hope you will tune in and I'll give my tagline now. And it's, it's even, it's even more relevant than ever because we talked about the story that it derives from. So it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the flat squirrel podcast network home to digging for kryptonite Another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.